Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. In October of 2002, the D.C. snipers terrorized residents of Washington, D.C., Virginia, and Maryland for three weeks. During that time, people lived in constant fear that they would be killed, shot down while in the midst of doing something normally safe and benign, some daily activity like pumping gas, waiting for the bus, even just walking across a parking lot to do a little bit of shopping. In total, 10 people were murdered, three people were critically injured, and others would be randomly shot at. Hundreds of FBI agents and local police officers would work the case before it was over. They were desperate to catch the man who was dubbed the DC sniper or beltway sniper by the media, except it wasn't one man. Investigators were looking for a lone white male gunman. They had no idea how wrong their profile was. When it was all over, 41-year-old John Allen Muhammad and 17-year-old Lee Boyd Malvo, both black, would be arrested. And now the authorities had to unravel the strange father-son-ish relationship between the two and uncover their motive for the shootings. Both the authorities and the public wondered, how could a man convince a teenage boy to become a killer? It appeared that John Muhammad had turned Lee Malvo into his personal assassin. Lee became a killing machine who wouldn't hesitate to pull the trigger on any target John ordered him to take out. How was that able to happen? The answer is pretty sad. Lee Malvo had been abandoned by so many people, you know, so many different times throughout his life, combined with a powerful longing to be part of a family, to have a dad that loved him, combined with being a people pleaser, that he'd become very unusually desperate for love and stability. John Muhammad offered him everything he wanted, a home, a family, and a father's love. And John loved to control his environment. And Lee was right for being controlled. In return for a sense of belonging, Lee was willing to do anything John wanted, even if that meant killing random people. He knew it was wrong, but to him, it was also right because John approved. Killing allowed him to maintain and deepen his relationship with a father figure you know, who had spent months brainwashing him. John exploited the power of a parent's love to carry out a twisted revenge plot against his ex-wife, all under the guise of helping create a new society based on Nation of Islam principles. The DC Sniper's case is a truly odd example of just how much someone can manipulate another person, how using love rather than fear as a means of control can have deadly effects. 
Also an example of how a skilled shooter or shooters can essentially hold an entire metropolitan area hostage. Today, we'll discuss John and Lee's lives before they became intertwined, their strange relationship, the 22 days of terror they unleashed around the D.C. area, and the seven additional murders they were responsible for on their way to the D.C. area. All this and more, in a true crime, it's incredible what some people are willing to do just to get back at an X edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sack. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praiseable Jangles, and glory be to Triple M. Hope you, uh, Dad Sacks, had a good Father's Day this past weekend. Recording before Father's Day, uh, hoping for sunshine and enough warmth to get out on the boat for the first time this summer. That is what I want for Father's Day. Uh, such an interesting story for you today. Technically a serial killer tale, uh, a tale of two serial killers, really, but their motives, the way their relationship worked, uh, so, so different than any of the killers we've covered so far. The closest episode, this would probably, uh, uh that this episode would, you know, the closest other suck that this suck probably is. I can't even think of how to phrase that phrase. <laughs> this suck is probably closest to the Columbine massacre there. That's how you phrase that, um, in our catalog. But even that episode isn't really that similar to this one. It, it, I guess it just stands alone. Like John Allen Muhammad, Lee Boyd Malvo, just a very unusual pair of killers. So uh, I was fascinated by this story. I hope you are as well. A uh, couple quick announcements before digging in. New merch in the Bad Magic store this week, just in time for the upcoming 4th of July holiday. You can head on over to badmagicmerch.com. Check out the new red, white, and blue tea and tank. This design also available in a cool uh, two-tone mug and wall flag, because why not? So check it out. Go, go full fucking Lee Greenwood this 4th. Uh, speaking of celebrations, need to address the recent group of dirtbags that made national news here in Coeur d'Alene for attempting to riot at a Pride in the Park LGBTQIA plus support event back on Saturday, June 11th. Uh, got a lot of texts, messages asking me about it. Uh, the fam and I were out of town. We were in Chicago when it happened. Uh, thanks, by the way, to all the meat sacks who came out to the Davenport, Iowa and Chicago shows to close out the spring touring. It was fucking fantastic. Uh, but not fantastic what happened here. Anyway, 31 men, 31 really fucking stupid men, all the members of a white nationalist group called Patriot Front were arrested and quickly by awesome members of our local law enforcement who uh, do a great job around here. Those 31 uh, dipshits, a bunch of strong pony boys, uh, traveled to near the event in a U-Haul trailer and then police shut them down before their dumbasses could do anything terrible. Uh, most have traveled to Idaho from other states. Do you want to point that out? Outfitted with riot shields, shin guards, at least one smoke grenade. Also had masks on, but the police made sure to take those off and expose them. I love that. Uh, they're accused of planning to incite a violent disturbance at a pride celebration. And then they planned apparently, you know, allegedly to continue rioting along Sherman Avenue. Uh, we record on Sherman Avenue. Uh, this all took place not that far at all, really, from the Suck Dungeon. Uh, only two of those idiots come from Idaho, neither from CDA, one from Genesee and one from Idaho Falls. And two others do have ties to Spokane. Uh, and just want to say that their actions do not represent this area, at least not the people I interact with here. A lot of good people around here trying hard to promote an inclusive, tolerant atmosphere to reverse the narrative. Uh, unfortunately, we do have, it feels like, more than our fair share of medieval nut jobs who remind me more than I would care for of uh, Westboro Baptist Church lunatics. Just want to use this recent episode on uh, recent event. Uh, excuse me, to, uh, you know, remind people where I stand on the side of acceptance and tolerance, uh, you know, as does everyone else who works here. It's why we chose rainbowrailroad.org to donate to this month. 
And if you choose to get pissed about me saying any of this, I don't know, I don't know why you would, but if you do for some reason, uh, take your email and shove it up your ass. Uh, toss it in the garbage where we will, where you belong, in my opinion. If you're that against, you know, just fucking people wanting to love who they want to love. Uh, we all have real problems in this world to deal with. Economic disparity, underfunded mental health care resources, incurable diseases, natural disasters, our own impending fucking deaths. Polish people, come on. Uh, but seriously, we have a bunch of real scary shit to face, so why add to it by hating people just for being born of a different sexual persuasion? A persuasion that hurts no one, by the way. If you don't like it, well, I guess just don't participate it, you know, in it. Unless, you know, you are of that ilk, then maybe just give in to your fucking nature. Uh, don't keep choosing to be bothered by something, though, that will just only bother you if you allow yourself to be bothered by it. It's irrational to be bothered by it. Uh, yeah, so just want to promote some uh, love and tolerance. Love my white meat sex, my black meat sex, uh, all the colors in between. Love my male meat sex, female meat sex, my unsure meat sex, and love my straight meat sex, lesbian, gay, queer, transgender, intersex, asexual, and any and every other sexual preference that involves one adult loving another meat sex. Love how you want to fucking love. Identify how you want to identify. Also love loads of uh, Christian sex, Muslim sex, Hindu sex, Buddhist sex, Jewish sex, atheist, agnostic sex, and a lot of other sweet fucking sex. You let me be me, I let you be you. As long as you and I aren't taking advantage or exploiting or hurting anyone else, why should anyone fucking care? When it comes to one adult loving another adult, can't the world always use some extra love? So how about we all fuck off with the dumb shit involving being a hate-mongering bigot who just wants everyone else to only love exactly the way they love? We have gas prices and supply chain problems and shit to worry about. Hail Nimrod and Lucifina loves all of you beautiful bastards. Uh, Other than the fucking, what is it called? Patriot Front? Lucifina really doesn't care for your fucking ignorant asses. So maybe stop being just a, a fucking dumpster fire of a human being. And that's it. That's all I got uh, to say about that. Uh, so let's get to our story after I push this button. Uh, just over a year after 9-11, uh, the general population of the U.S. was still on edge. I remember that tension. Uh, the Washington Post conducted a poll on October 24, 2002, the day the snipers were arrested, asking D.C. residents what they felt the most threatened by. Snipers, 9-11, or the anthrax attacks. The D.C. snipers did win at 44%, but 9-11 wasn't that far behind at 29%. Anthrax attacks still left a lot of people feeling especially vulnerable, with 13% of D.C. residents being more afraid of being poisoned to death in some type of terrorist event than they were of an active shooter randomly killing citizens in their area. I say shooter singular because that's what people uh, thought at the time the poll was conducted. By the time that poll was conducted, the D.C. sniper had ended 10 lives, injured three additional people in the area. None of those people had made the type of choices that victims of other serial killers have often made that have historically led to a lot less empathy for, you know, their murders. D.C. sniper victims hadn't been sex workers entering the van of a stranger with no witnesses around to even see who they were driving off with. They, uh, they weren't addicted to hard drugs. They weren't again approaching or being approached by strangers while buying these drugs, perhaps alone in some poorly lit area. They weren't hitchhiking out by themselves. They didn't even, uh, you know, forget to lock their doors while sleeping at home. Hadn't chosen to walk around alone in a neighborhood, particularly noted for, for violence. Weren't closing down a bar alone, even sitting at a bar alone. They weren't engaging in any behavior that, uh, you know, a rational person would deem as high risk. They weren't doing anything that anyone could say, uh, you know, well, yeah, you should have been more careful. Unless by being more careful, you know, you, you think that just people should just never leave their houses, just always stay inside of a locked house, never open the drapes, curtains, blinds, windows, nothing. The victims were doing everyday tasks like cutting grass, pumping, uh, you know, cutting grass, yeah, pumping gas, shopping. Uh, or just like reading when they were killed. These shootings also occurred in busy areas full of people in broad daylight where you would think you should be safe. Plenty of other people around. Uh, none of the victims fit a particular type. Uh, 
Some of the victims were young, some were old, some were black, some were white, some men, some women. It felt like no one was safe. That's why this was uh, so much scarier than, uh, you know, anthrax, 9-11, which were scary things at that time that I myself, you know, like would think about and worry about. In the D.C. area, if you left your house, no matter who you were, you know, you just you knew that you might get shot dead by a gunman who you would never even see. Someone you'd only maybe uh, just hear a millisecond before being gunned down. You'd have no time to prepare, no chance to defend yourself. How maddening, how stressful. In response to these shootings, the FBI quickly dedicated 400 agents to the case and set up a tip line. Over 100,000 tips flooded in. Agents mapped out all the crime scenes. Behavioral analysts uh, threw together a profile of the killer. They set up a joint operations center with Montgomery County, Maryland Police Department, led by Police Chief Charles Moose. That's a great name. The Moose. Chief Moose. Moose on the fucking loose. Uh, You know that guy got caught caught, uh, all kinds of shit coming up on the force. Officer Bullwinkle. Sergeant Moose Knuckle. Come on, at least one person made that reference. Uh, Captain Moose Knuckle and his officers uh, struggled to identify and locate the snipers because of the randomness of their attacks. Each day, the shooter remained out on the loose. The more fearful D.C. area residents became. Businesses closed. Schools in the surrounding areas increased security and canceled all outdoor events and field trips. City League sports teams canceled games. Public events held in the city were canceled. Kids had recess held inside for almost a month. Residents of D.C. and the surrounding areas became afraid to go outside their homes for any reason at any time. Many were truly afraid to let their kids play in the backyard. Many didn't let their kids play in the yard. You just never knew where the striper, uh, sniper, the striper. You just never knew where the striper might be. <laughs> Damn it. I wanted to hit that a little longer. That was ad lib. That was not, not planned at all. <laughs> that just makes me think about uh, how random that would be. It wouldn't be, you know, terrifying, but just a, uh, a different thing of like a, 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 the striper band was terrorizing like a metro area. Like you just lived in fear that you might walk around the corner and just fucking hear this, you know, full amps. They just have things set up outside, you know, I don't know, in your backyard, maybe up on your roof. You got to grab your paper and just suddenly this. <laughs> uh, but anyway, you, you didn't know where the striper would. Uh, God damn it. Sniper, not striper. The sniper would strike. Ah, oh, man. I kept trying to say sniper would strike. And my brain wanted to add those two words in the striper. Uh, Activities like mowing the lawn, pumping gas, running errands became uh, much more than simple chores or inconveniences. They were now life or death situations. People at gas stations literally started crouching down low behind their vehicles, shuffling back and forth like people would always be moving outside, make themselves harder to hit. Some gas stations even covered their pumps with large tarps, offer some illusion of safety to customers. People were routinely like zigzagging through parking lots to make themselves, you know, tougher targets. It was fucking crazy. Imagine how stressful that would be. I mean, it would be like living in a war zone. Like, sadly, many people live right now in areas around the world with active military conflicts or militarized insurgencies, right? Where you just don't know what the fuck is going to happen, where the bomb's going to drop. How extra terrible for vets in this area at this time with PTSD, right? You come home from the Gulf War in Iraq where you never knew if or when you might be shot. And then a couple years later, 10 years later, maybe when you thought it was all behind you, now you got a sniper fucking roaming around at home. Shortly after his arrest, the police came to learn or at least briefly believe that John Muhammad uh, expressed sympathy for the September 11th terrorists and may have shot people out of anti-American sentiment. But that's not true. As we'll learn, he had much more personal motives, driven by an extreme need for control. D.C. sniper attacks ended up being called a non-traditional hostage-taking situation by some law enforcement specialists. The attacks had all the elements of a normal hostage-taking except for a, quote, static stronghold or crisis site. And instead of a few hostages, the whole D.C. region was taken hostage. I would have never thought of these attacks 
in that way had we not come across that info. But it makes so much sense. Like once I read it, I was like, oh yeah, that's exactly what it was. Like since for weeks, no one knew who the sniper was, only that they kept, you know, just uh, taking people out in the DC area in a way that made it very hard to catch them. I mean, it was like they were holding the entire area hostage, which is really scary to think about. Makes me imagine that scenario, you know, here in Coeur d'Alene. As I worked on this section of notes for the first time, I stood at a desk just a few feet from a window in plain view of a commercial building next door. Someone on the roof of that building could have easily sniped me if they wanted to for whatever reason. Uh, if I walk out into the parking lot to get into my truck, I could be sniped by someone on the rooftop. Uh, rooftops of a variety of buildings around here. Someone sitting in a car from a variety of locations nearby. If I walked out the front of my building to head down the street, all kinds of places I could be shot from. Often, you know, I often jaunt downtown in the morning to get uh, some breakfast or some coffee. So many places they could snipe me. And if I lived in a much more populated area, oh my God, so many more options. I was just in Chicago and Boston uh, with Lindsay and the kids and we stayed downtown in both cities. I wouldn't have felt safe going anywhere or having the shades up on the windows in our rooms in either place had a sniper been on the loose. Again, what a crazy amount of stress those two pieces of shit uh, place a, you know, entire city under, entire metro, metropolitan area under, you know, numerous uh, uh, locations, sub- suburbs and things. Now, Northern Virginia Magazine wrote in a 2019 article, reporters got used to waiting for the next shooting, dropping what they were doing, driving out to a crime scene that could be hours away and then do live television for an unspecified period of time with little or no information to report. A lot of the day-to-day coverage was scene setters, footage of people pumping gas on their knees, interviews with people who changed their grocery shopping habits to avoid walking to parking lots, canceled soccer games and childless outdoor playgrounds, and then the traveling roadshow would set up a satellite truck in a different location 20 miles away. As the crisis continued, media professionals realized that their reporting was becoming part of the twisted logic behind staging the murders. If the news media reported that all the shootings happened during the day, they would shoot somebody at night. If they reported all the shots happened during a weekday, they'd shoot someone on the weekend. Perhaps most infamously, the media reported that no children had been shot and within a number of hours, 13-year-old middle school student or a 13-year-old middle school student was shot in Bowie, Maryland. Man, how disturbing. How terrible for those reporters and journalists, right? To worry that just doing your job was going to help get somebody else killed. FBI profilers uh, initially thought the shootings were committed by a disgruntled middle-class white man driving a van. Uh, Excluding the disgruntled characteristic, uh, they couldn't have been more wrong. The mastermind behind the shootings was a divorced man who'd lost custody of his kids, who'd also manipulated a teenage boy into becoming his right-hand killing machine. All right. Now that the stage has been set, let's get to meet these two ridiculous assholes, find out how they met each other, and how they became the DC snipers in today's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. On December 31st, 1960, John Allen Williams is born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. His parents are Ernest and Murtis Williams. Fuck yeah. Ernest and Murtis. <laughs> Sounds like a couple uh, born in the first few decades of the 20th century. Murtis is listed uh, as Eva in a few popular sources, but the most credible sources do refer to her as Murtis, if you're familiar with this story. So I'm going to go with Murtis. A lot of shitty sources out there about these shooters. I am noticing that more and more with the clickbait world we live in. A lot of content creators putting uh, way more energy into headlines and thumbnail images than they are into, uh, you know, paying for a variety of solid newspaper subscriptions and archives to actually access credible information. Just a lot of like, ah, close enough. Makes me a bit nervous. 
You know, we have way too much disinformation out there as it is. I don't want to see it get worse. See people either influenced by bad info or uh, losing trust in sources in general or, or both more often. Uh, back to the shithead now. Shortly after John's birth, the Williams family moves to New Orleans because Murtis has been diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, John's mom dies in either 1963 when he was two, in 1964 when he's three, or in 1965 when he's four. Sources vary quite a bit there. Uh, They'll smooth out as we get farther into this, by the way. I'm not going to constantly be pointing out the discrepancies here. Uh, He and his siblings are raised by an aunt back in Baton Rouge. I'm going to say she died in 1964, since that's what uh, his aunt said when interviewed by a reporter for the Chicago Tribune in an October 27th, 2002 article that does appear to be well-sourced. A lot of interviews with family and old friends in that one. A lot of good quotes. John siblings' names are redacted in the published FBI reports about this case, but a few national news articles uh, reference him as being one of six siblings, including a younger brother named Edward Williams, older sister named Bessie, another sister named uh, Orlin Marie. Not sure what the names of the other two siblings are. I imagine they're uh, glad to not be publicly associated with John. John's sister, Orlin, uh, shed some light on a possible dark childhood they had, telling a CNN reporter after her brother's conviction for capital murder, uh, but before being sentenced, that our life was pure hell. We just got beat. I wouldn't wish the life we had on my worst enemy. She said all six Williams children were beaten with electrical cords, switches, hoses, pipes, fucking pipes, and by hand. John's sister, Bessie, added, we didn't know anything but beatings. We were raised like animals. According to John's brother, Edward, their uncle, Felton Holiday dished out a lot of those beatings. He worked as a guard at a Louisiana reform school in the early 1960s, where he allegedly beat a 15-year-old mentally handicapped prisoner to death. According to some family members, he hit that kid with a leather strap between 25 and 30 times and hit him hard enough to eventually kill him. Ed said that before Uncle Felton got in trouble for, you know, murdering a mentally handicapped teenager, uh, that he also took a strap to John. Ed said that another relative once forced John to, quote, place his hand on the spark plug of a lawnmower, and then he pulled the cord. Ed said it would shock the shit out of him, and then they would just laugh in the yard. What the fuck is wrong with some people? Like, like it really takes a special kind of piece of shit to do that to a child, to pick on a smaller, weaker human who's financially dependent on either you or other adults whom you're connected to, adults who are supposed to protect and care for the kid, and then to fucking do it for sport on top of that, for some, for some laughs, for some giggles. Come on, let's put on a little show. Grab some beer. Uh, rapists, pedophiles, serial killers, and child abusers. Man, if hell's real, I hope there's a special place there for him. Uh, John's dad then left the family after his mom's death. So backing up a, a little bit here. How many deadbeat absent fathers do we come across in our sucks on various murderers? And he would be primarily raised by, you know, two aunts. And it sounds like a bunch of fucking, or at least one super shitty uncle. But two aunts, uh, Addie Washington and Annie Jackson in Scotlandville, a once independent community and one time largest majority black community in the state of Louisiana. By the time John came around, Scotlandville had been absorbed into Baton Rouge, but was still a predominantly uh, black, you know, neighborhood slash community. The neighborhood of Scotlandville is where John uh, was born and raised and would, uh, you know, live all the way through graduating high school, stay there for a few years after school. John's aunts would uh, present a much less violent description of his childhood when interviewed in the fall of 2002. His siblings, as we heard, spoke of a lot of abuse at the hands of various family members, made their childhood sound like a living hell in a few other interviews. And then various family members, when interviewed, uh, by the uh, Tribune, all made John's childhood sound pretty delightful for a poor kid raised by numerous relatives, none of whom were his parents. Who's telling the truth? Well, you know, who knows? Both versions uh, have multiple people all telling the same story, so it's hard to say. His Aunt Addie, a maid, walked from her house every day to cook, clean, and wash the kids' clothes. Aunt Annie, or Annie, excuse me, a teacher moved back home and made important decisions regarding the kids, taking them to the doctor when they needed to be taken, uh, seeing that homework was done. 
a real group effort. Eddie Washington, a cousin who grew up in the same house as John, said, uh, John was a little spoiled, so he would get into squabbles with the kids. He was kind of pretty, and Annie took him under her wing. He was petted a lot. He got ice cream when we didn't. Dude still sounds jealous. Oh, Eddie's still pissed about missing out on that sweet ice cream and not getting in as many pets. I know what he means by the pets, but uh, that verbiage uh, put a weird image in my mind, right? Like a row of kids all sitting like fucking cats or dogs, literally getting petted, told how they're, oh, good boy or good girl. But one's getting petted a little bit more than the others. You know, maybe they're growling. Uh, Eddie said that the bigger kids slept on the floor. Younger ones slept three to a bed in a four bedroom house. They didn't have many toys, but the few they had were carefully chosen. Interestingly, considering uh, who John would become, no one was allowed to have a toy gun. Also interesting that, you know, not just the uh, older generation of the, the aunts, also uh, some of the cousins in this article are saying that their childhood wasn't bad at all. So who knows? I, I am a little skeptical. Uh, the, ti- the timing of when uh, some of John's siblings said that their childhood was hell was before his sentencing. And I wonder if they hammed it up to try and uh, not get him the death sentence. Anyway, Eddie said that John had a passion for tennis, pancakes, sharp clothes. He told a Tribune reporter, when he was a baby, he would wake up at 4 a.m. crying for pancakes and his mother would get up and make them. He was so spoiled. I mean, can you blame him? Come on, it's fucking pancakes. You know, if he wails, mom flips them. What kid doesn't love pancakes? I, st- I still love pancakes. If I thought Lindsay would flip me some pancakes if I wailed long enough, I might do me some wailing. Uh, when he was in his teens, John and a cousin once slipped through a window of a nearby house to make some waffles. First I've ever heard of someone uh, breaking and entering for waffles, but I, fu- I get it. You know, because waffles are fucking incredible. Almost as good as me to pancakes. Now there's a lot of, uh, you know, waffle pancake debate going on. I'm a little bit more of a pancake guy, but I like a waffle. Most of the time I'm in a, a soft, fluffy pancake mood, but sometimes I'm in a crispy, but still fluffy waffle mood. And I'm always in a chicken and waffle mood. Strangely, never in a chicken and pancakes mood. Chicken tenders with Frank's hot sauce, some crispy ass waffles covered in butter, fake maple syrup. Come on now, that's the best shit. Craving some Roscoe's. Roscoe's chicken waffles now. Uh, uh, John was a member of uh, Scotlandville High School's tennis team. And he was a pretty good player, relative said. Roscoe's in, is in the uh, LA area, by the way, a couple locations. Uh, just before graduating, he played in a tournament at Louisiana State University. Though he lived near the predominantly black Southern University, uh, he apparently never talked about going to college. Perhaps he would have liked to become a professional tennis player, his cousin Eddie said, but no one in the family had any you know, money for training. His aunt said at home, John was a, a jokester while he was in high school. He's always telling stories, making people laugh. His aunt Annie, the teacher, said she spoiled him, said she was, uh, uh, that he was her favorite you know, kid growing up and was still her favorite, even after his capital murder conviction. Man, how shitty were the other kids in that family? <laughs> One of the DC snipers is your fucking favorite kid. Uh, she told the Tribune, he was my baby. He was such a loving, chubby boy with cheeks and a beautiful smile. He lived in a Christian home and we taught him the right way. She said that John sang in the children's choir at uh, King David Baptist Church around the corner. Said that everyone was shocked when he converted to Islam while in the army in the 90s and changed his last name to Muhammad. Adding, we didn't like it, but he was grown. What can you do? Yeah, true. What can you do? You know, when your kids grow up, they want to do their own thing. It isn't your thing. Most times you can just let them be who they're going to be and accept it. Or you can be stubborn and watch your relationship with her. Uh, reporters also interviewed old classmates in 2002. Nobody could really provide many details about who John was in school. Uh, he didn't really stand out. A lot of them said he usually just chilled out up on the roof, uh, hitting the tops of trees, you know, pantomiming, pointing an invisible rifle at other kids, saying shit like, sniper strikes again. So, you know, no real red flags. Kidding, of course. No, he was described overall as just a regular student in his high school class of roughly 300 kids. Pat McAllister LaDuff, President McAllister LaDuff, class president, senior year, 1978, uh, said, I don't remember him doing anything outstanding. He was not a bully. He never caused any trouble. For the most part, he was pretty quiet. 
Uh, John joined the Louisiana Army, Louisiana Army uh, National Guard his senior year. His uh, aunt Annie said said she was proud. Uh, he was proud to serve. Loved to wear his uniform. After graduating from high school, Muhammad worked as a welder for a few years in a local scrap metal yard, and then also at a shipyard. Earned about fourteen bucks an hour, which was uh, real good money for that time and place. A uh, rough equivalent to about sixty sixty five bucks an hour now. Uh, he had a good time. He uh, after graduation, he dated around, wore flashy clothes, enjoyed being a young, single, attractive man with some money in his pocket. Purchased a brand new black Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme. Family member said he turned into a uh, a real lady killer. He was having a lot of fun out of high school. Young uh, cousin Edward Holiday. Too many fucking Eddies in this family. Remember being sixteen not long after John graduated, and he still didn't have a, a driver's license or a car. But then when he asked John if he could borrow his new car to go on a date one time, his cousin just t- handed him the keys without hesitation and let him borrow a nice, sweet new pair of shoes to wear that night. Eddie Holiday idolized his older cousin, thought he was the man, coolest fucking dude in town. In 1981, as I mentioned a few moments ago, now 20-year-old John married a local woman named Carol Coglier, who he may have gone to high school uh, with, may have even been a high school sweetheart with. Sources are a little unclear. Uh, yeah. Uh, and also, you know, in st- st- still in the uh, Louisiana Army National Guard. He was uh, later described as personal and outgoing by one of his commanders. John attended basic training at Fort Leonard Wood, uh, which is in Missouri, and then trained as a combat engineer. He would serve in the 769th Engineer Battalion. In the early 80s, John got into some trouble twice with the National Guard, once for failure to report for duty, second time for hitting an officer. Wish I knew more details about the hitting the officer part. Uh, early signs that this motherfucker was angry and unstable? Or normal case of two young dudes getting heated, throwing some punches back and forth when dudes settled a lot more shit with their fists than they do now. Or maybe that officer was just a huge dick. Who knows? Also, about a year after getting married, John and Carol had a son they named Lindbergh. 1985, John transferred from Louisiana National Guard to the U.S. Army and was stationed at Fort Lewis just outside of Tacoma, just south of Tacoma, Washington, with the 15th Engineer Battalion. His wife, Carol, and their new three-year-old son, Lindbergh, stayed home. And then John and Carol get divorced the next year, 1986, right? Something was going on probably when uh, they wouldn't move out there with him. Not long after that, his ex-wife uh, wins sole custody of their son after Muhammad refuses to return the kid after a summer visit to Washington. This is something that keeps happening to this guy. Lindbergh said his father was extremely controlling and will testify years later at Lee Malvo's trial saying, if my mother had not been a strong woman, if my mother had not fought for me, then it would have been me rather than Lee Malvo in that car with John Muhammad in October of t- uh, 2002. And I don't think he's wrong. Knowing what you'll soon also know, I, I, uh, I don't think he's wrong at all. Before moving further along with John's timeline, let's now meet his future murder spree uh, accomplice, uh, protege, maybe, Lee Boyd Malvo. On February 18th, 1985, Malvo born in Kingston, Jamaica to unmarried couple Leslie Malvo, a mason, and Una James, a seamstress. Kingston is the capital of Jamaica, founded way back in 1693. Got about 1.2 million people living there. Uh, noted journalist Donovan Webster, working for Vanity Fair for this assignment, interviewed Leslie Malvo, Lee's father, for a 2004 article in the DC Snipers. Webster traveled to Lee's old stomping grounds near Waltham Park in Kingston, learned about, uh, you know, uh, most of what you can now find out about Lee's childhood, actually. Uh, Lee's dad, Leslie, worked as a mason and a construction foreman, met Lee's mom, Una, in 1983 or 1984 when she was 20, and he was in his late 30s. They started dating, moved in together about six months later, and soon after that, Una became pregnant with Lee. Clearly, no one told them about how to soak, float, or loophole. Gosh dang, man. Don't want to end up a father, mother, too young, man. Uh, Lee was close with his father as a very young child. Almost every night when Leslie got home from work, they'd head out to an ice cream shop where Lee would choose his favorite flavor of ice cream, grape nut. So clearly, uh, from a young age, he was a fucking weirdo. 
whose favorite flavor is grape nut? Sounds terrible to me, but you know what? Lee loved it. Lee said in a later prison interview that his favorite memory was getting ice cream with his dad. And then Leslie and Lee often spent their evenings playing dominoes with Leslie's friends. Leslie described Lee as a uh, polite, manageable boy. That's a, that's a weird-ass adjective to describe your son as when you only use two. Well, well, if you had two adjectives to describe your son, what would it be? Polite and uh, manageable. Don't mind the boy, man. He's cool, man. He's manageable. Don't have to worry about uh, feeding him or bathing him or nothing. He's a manageable boy, man. He manages. It's fucking weird. Uh, family of the three lived in a nice rented home in Kingston until Lee was five. His parents split up due to having incompatible personalities. And just, as you'll find out, uh, being pretty, pretty terrible people, uh, I think. Donovan Webster described Leslie as a relaxed and self-assured man who worked hard by day, relaxed at night. Described Una as a volatile, deeply Christian, often confrontational, highly intelligent woman who was and remains fiercely committed to a life of personal improvement. Friends and acquaintances called her uh, overbearing, a little crazy, and capable of overwhelming a conversation. So she sounds like a lot. And dad sounds pretty chill. Mom's ambitious. Dad's a little more blue collar. Uh, I can see why they didn't make it. Uh, those who remember little Lee described him as smart, pleasant, and, and polite. Polite coming up again. Uh, a, little, a little boy who loved to make people happy by telling jokes. His cousin, Stacy Ann Noreen, would say, even as a boy, Lee was also brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant. And he always lived for everyone else. He was always concerned for you before him. He was a good Christian boy. He was funny too. He could make you laugh with his mimicry and the looks he could put on his face. When Lee turned four, his mom, Una, got him accepted into kindergarten at Kingston's Obistana Preparatory, Evangelical Christian School. Uh, little Lee wanted to be a pilot. Una wanted him to be a doctor. He would obviously grow up to be neither. His childhood is about to uh, really unravel. But before we uh, go through that, let's back up and check in with, uh, with John. In November of 1985, John separates from his wife, Carol. Right, we kind of talked about how they split. Uh, U.S. Army uh, goes into that as we went over. Uh, what we didn't go over was at 1985, John met his uh, soon-to-be second wife. Maybe that had something to do with the divorce with the first wife, Mildred Green. Uh, she and John actually grew up in the same neighborhood, but just hadn't met until 1985 when they were in their mid-20s. She found out a month later that he was still married, but continued to see him because he, quote, kept his promises. And that's a fucking weird thing to say. <laughs> he kept his promises. Uh, if he's seen you behind his wife's back, I, is he a guy keeping a lot of promises? I mean, I think vows are promises. Uh, I was intrigued by him keeping his word, she said. He was the only man who said he was going to do something and did it. That was the attraction for me. All right. Uh, two years later, 1987, according to multiple sources, John will change his name from John Williams to John Muhammad and reportedly become a Nation of Islam member. And that's according to numerous sources. Uh, however, FBI records state that he converted to Islam in 1992 and legally changed his name in 2000. Uh, we've talked about the NOI before, uh, Nation of Islam. Uh, they are a fucking hate group. They're one of the most like mainstream accepted hate groups, but they are a, a hate group. They're, uh, it's black supremacy. It's the other side of the same coin as the KKK. Uh, veers into anti-Semitism, conspiracy lore a lot as well. Uh, Jewish Illuminati bullshit, uh, not a fan. Louis Farrakhan, their leader since 1978, says all kinds of anti-Semitic shit. You can find a variety of quotes. You can find videos of him saying this shit. Stuff like the, the Jews don't like Farrakhan, so they call me Hitler. Well, that's a good name. Hitler was a very great man. He wasn't a great man for me as a black person, but he was a great German. <laughs> okay, that's a quote from Farrakhan from 1984. So that's what he's into now. John was uh, stationed, as I mentioned, in Fort Lewis, Washington, assigned uh, there to the 15th Engineer Battalion, trained as a mechanic, truck driver, and metal worker. He also becomes qualified with an M16, earning the Expert Rifleman's Badge, the Army's highest of three levels of basic rifle marksmanship for a soldier. This meant he hit at least 36 out of 40 targets, ranging from 500 to 300 meters away. 
John was a skilled marksman who'd end up serving in Germany and Saudi Arabia during the Gulf War. Uh, Mildred will be interviewed in the first season, fourth episode, Mildred, his second wife, uh, for the docuseries Monster in My Family, which we've referenced on a few other episodes, uh, ran for two seasons on the Lifetime channel, focusing on relatives of serial killers and their victims. Uh, and she said that John was charming and well-liked by everyone who knew him. Said he was a jovial person and the life of the party. He was a problem solver. He was a great person. Uh, that episode aired on July 22nd, 2015. Uh, only six episodes in that first season, and we covered uh, four of the killers they focused on, one killer an episode. Or two in this case, John Muhammad, uh, but also John Wayne Gacy, Keith the Happy Face Killer Jesperson, Robert Lee the Spokane Killer Yates. Uh, Mildred also said that John was romantic, brought her flowers, uh, could make her laugh about anything. The two got married in 1988. John first told the FBI he was not married at that time, uh, then later said that he and Mildred married uh, on March 10th, 1988. Uh, John and Mildred eventually will have three kids together, John Jr., Selena, and Taliba. Uh, Taliban will state in Monster My Family, my dad was a great father. He was always there for his children. Finally, Mildred additionally described John as playful and loving uh, as a father, uh, very involved in his children's lives. I mean, it sounds like he's such a great dude, right? Maybe not quite. I feel like the producers of that show really pushed for the narrative of a super nice guy who just fucking snapped out of nowhere. Uh, But that narrative is not true. Uh, You'll find out soon that John changes uh, pretty dramatically several years into his marriage with Mildred. As Mildred herself said in a few uh, non-reality TV interviews with some newspaper reporters, that he spirals, spirals, spirals over several years into the dude the world will know as one of the DC snipers. Let's check back in now with the other sniper, Lee Malvo. October of 1988, Lee's dad, Leslie Malvo, is offered a job on Grand Cayman Island. Uh, Lee's three years old. Leslie will uh, uh, go help build a casino and hotel complex. In doing so, he's able to send home $300 a month to help his family. And that's what he does for a time. He visits home as much as he can but also away for long stretches, you know, months at a time. Una becomes resentful of her husband being gone. And then she hears rumors that Leslie has a new girlfriend on that island. And that he also received a raise he didn't tell her about, keeping the extra money for himself. And of course, for his new lady. Uh, Leslie will later deny seeing someone else behind Una's back and also making extra money and not telling her. According to him, their relationship started to really fray when he was away in this remote job uh, due to uh, Una becoming paranoid, jealous, and constantly nagging him. So who knows again, which one is telling the truth? It's uh, he said, she said. Back to John now real quick. In 1989, John transferred to Germany, joins the 864th Engineer Battalion, uh, working with heavy equipment and training as a sniper specializing in targeting civilian populations uh, alongside a teenage sidekick. Or trains as a demolition specialist or that, probably that one. First one sounds like something that would have come up a lot more news coverage around this terrible story. Back to little Lee. Late 1990, early 1991, Lee's father, Leslie, gets into a heated argument with his mom, Una, and punches her in the jaw hard enough to knock out a tooth. So maybe maybe a little bit more than a heated argument. A fight. Domestic violence. Next day, they have another heated argument where Una attacks Leslie from behind with a machete. She swings at his right hand, misses, but does cut his wrist, and he's uh, left with a scar. Also more than an argument. Uh, source listed the punch to the jaw as an argument. I, I, uh, found that ridiculous. And I added the second one. I qualified the machete attack as an argument just to be intentionally ridiculous. Uh, domestic violence now getting thrown back and forth by both parties. Uh, when Leslie returns to Grand Cayman Island after these two fights, Una moves out of the house, takes more than $11,000 out of their joint bank account, moves to Endeavor, a remote district in Jamaica's St. Anne Parish, almost exactly 50 miles from Kingston. Rents a house from a relative there, opens up a small grocery store. Uh, Leslie has no idea. He comes back home a few weeks later, a bit surprised, and I imagine more than a little upset to find out that his house is empty, his bank account is empty, and his son's gone. Pretty rough homecoming. Uh, he immediately starts looking for Una and Lee, 
and then finds him a week later, begs Una to come back. She says she doesn't want to have any more contact with him and then forbids him to see their son. Leslie just goes back home, hopes that over time they'll be able to fix the relationship. This is according to him later. Uh, Then he learns that when Una registered Lee for his new school, she listed uh, the father as deceased. So yikes. Uh, At this point, not wanting to fight for the relationship with his almost six uh, or just turned six-year-old son, Leslie, for all intents and purposes, abandons him, just gives up. Uh, Little Lee overall seems happy and well-adjusted to his new relatives, but he does desperately miss his father. Dewey Cornell, his evaluating psychologist at his later trial, will tell Vanity Fair, one of the biggest components of Lee's personality is that he was a, a, a teacher pleaser, a parent pleaser, an adult pleaser. He might have misbehaved or acted out when away from adults, but when he was in their presence, he was a boy on his best behavior. He probably didn't want to lose his remaining parentage. I'd expect he was very anxious about that. So how, you know, how fucking sad. Uh, Una's grocery store uh, did pretty well shortly after their move. Uh, Lee attended the local elementary school. Una met a man named Noy Lawrence, farmer and construction worker. For a while, they were happy together. Lee kind of had a stepdad. Uh, things seemed to be going, you know, all right for Una and Lee, other than Una forbidding Lee to be able to see his dad. Who knows how much more there is to the story. And then less than two years after moving in late 1992, though, power failure ruins the frozen and refrigerated foods in the grocery store. Una doesn't have the money for a full restock, and she is forced to close down her business. Then she and Noy returned to Kingston for work, which tells me he probably wasn't exactly killing it either. Lee's about seven when they moved and his time in Endeavor will will be the last period of any real stability he'll have in his life. Going forward, he'll never have a permanent address or a stable home environment. Uh, By the time Lee is only eight, he'll have attended seven different schools by the time he's eight. By the time he's 15, he'll have been to a dozen different schools. Holy shit. So much instability. I mean, imagine that. And And as an only fucking child, so much harder on him than it would be if he had siblings to be in the same boat with other kids to have consistency and camaraderie with about this. I mean, imagine have to start over 12 times in less than 12 years of school, more than once a grade. You're the new kid. Have to figure out how to make new friends, how to deal with being friendless. At least once a year, you got to say goodbye to any friends you might've made. And a lot of these schools will be in different little countries in the Caribbean too. I mean, that's just, that's just no way to have a childhood. Um, meanwhile, backing up to when young Lee moved back to Kingston in early 1991, an adult John Muhammad still serving in the military. John was deployed to Saudi Arabia for three months in 1991 as part of Operation Desert Shield, which then rolled into Operation Desert Storm. First operation, a, a buildup of troops. Second, active combat. John had the rank of sergeant, was put in charge of 21 soldiers, and he did see combat. He saw death. He performed perimeter guarding, mine sweeping, support. Uh, he was exposed to chemical agents and numerous soldiers in his unit would develop Gulf War Syndrome. And Gulf War Syndrome is a widely used term to refer to the unexplained illnesses occurring in veterans of the 1991 Gulf War. People affected by Gulf War Syndrome can experience fatigue, pain, cognitive problems, rashes, diarrhea, and more. According to Hopkins Medicine, it can be caused by chemical exposure and or psychological factors like PTSD. Before John left, he wrote down a list of instructions for Mildred in case he didn't come back. She said years later, he was only there for three months. When he came back, that strong, confident, jovial, happy man that left was no longer there. She said that before he went to Iraq, he wanted to be a career soldier, but then he returned from his tour of duty in the per- Persian Gulf War, a changed man. He told the black soldiers like himself were discriminated against. Uh, one incident in particular apparently left him seething. He told his wife he was accused of tossing an incendiary gr- grenade into a tent and that he was then hogtied, his arms and legs cuffed behind his back. Eh, seems suspicious to me. I mean, I've never served, never been in the military, but why would he be randomly accused of doing something like that? Why would they tie him up like that if he hadn't done anything? I mean, I know that could have happened, but is it likely? 
Just because of who becomes later, I have to wonder if there's a lot more to this story that he just never shared with Mildred. Might have uh, uh, left out some very important and possibly very incriminating details. Also told Mildred that once when a siren sounded to alert the troops to a possible gas attack, no one gave him a gas mask. And that by the time he learned it was a drill, he had been humiliated in a manner that he would never forget. Hmm. Again, I just feel like there's probably more to that story, but who knows? Uh, according to Mildred, John never got counseling when he came back, even though the military had diagnosed him with PTSD. Mildred said in her interview that no one really knew what to do to help him. All those positive descriptions of John from earlier, nearly all of those applied to John before he left home for Iraq. She said John would now do shit like sit in the corner for long periods of time, lost in some other place in his mind, refusing to interact with anyone or even make eye contact. And then he, would become, and then he became verbally abusive. And that he allegedly just got fucking weird. For example, Mildred said she noticed that when she'd make a comment about something that she liked, something uh, random, like a cup, a jacket, you know, just whatever, uh, she would find it destroyed the next day. <laughs> when Mildred asked John why he was doing this, she said that he replied, it's just a point of mind over matter. I don't mind it because you don't matter. That's his quote. What the fuck? That's some creepy and fucked up shit to say to somebody. Somebody you just destroyed something of, of theirs, you know, that they liked. John, why do you just throw him at this cup? It's broken now. I just told you yesterday, this is my favorite cup. I know. It's about mind over matter, Mildred. I don't mind. You don't matter. I don't mind because you don't matter. Mind matter. Matter mind. And then just do some weird evil villain laugh. Uh, Mildred said that Muhammad developed what seemed like a dual personality. Uh, for the first nearly six months, he was back from overseas. Uh, he'd go to work. And then when he was home, he'd just sit on the sofa, not saying much, fucking staring off in the middle of the distance. Then all of a sudden, after those six months, he snaps out of it. Now he gets real demanding. Everything around the house has to be done with military-style precision. He gets very controlling. Although their son, John Jr., had asthma and required medication. He also just gets weird. Uh, Muhammad suddenly tried to convince him he did not have that condition. That condition was for weak boys, and no son of his was a weak boy. He told his son that if he didn't overcome his asthma, he would never be considered a man. I got to say, I agree with him there. Right? Kids are too soft these days. 110%. Fucking love it. Love it. Love it. That's some alpha dad vibes. Reminds me of when my son Kyler couldn't do a push up. He tried laughing it off, you know, just laying on the floor. And I fucking kicked him in the stomach. God, I hated him so much. I hated how weak he was. I was yelling at him, get up. Get up, you little bitch. You want to call me dad? You want me to call you son? You fucking crank out at least 10 push ups with perfect form. Until then, you are nothing but a little fucking baby. And you will wear a diaper. And you will suck on a fucking binky like a little bitch baby that you are. And that's why he wore a diaper for almost his entire eighth grade year. And that's why he hates me now. But you know what? Worth it. So worth it. That motherfucker can do 30 push-ups now. Less than a minute at any time. Moments notice. And I can tell people he's my son again. And I can love him again. And I don't make him sleep in a little bitch baby crib anymore. Obviously none of that's true. At least I hope it's obvious. Uh, John is an angry, crazy dude now. While all this is going on, Mildred uh, will state that uh, while he's great at work, uh, you know, uh, she and John opened up their own auto repair business, really successful for a while. And he could be lovely and charming with customers, customers impressed by Muhammad's repair skills, the fact that he took his work so seriously, he wore surgical gloves, worked on their cars, but he's still crazy at home. That surgical glove thing, I don't know if that would impress me if I was a customer. Might just make me think he was nuts. He's taking himself a little too seriously. Come on, you're just changing the spark plug. What are you doing? Uh, Mildred also said that when he came back from combat duty, he got really good, good at playing mind games. She said he knew exactly what words to use to push your buttons. He studied everybody he was around. He knew what words to use in order to get you to do what he wanted. He would study your anger, how fast it would take you to calm down. He 
He's always thinking, his mind never idle. She believed he came to view her as an easy victim and eventually as his enemy. Sorry, I got a lot of sources after that. Uh, on, on April 24th, 1994, John Muhammad was honorably discharged from the army with the rank of sergeant. He served for 16 years. Why did he leave then? Why not stay in a few more for a few more years, get a full pension? Uh, never made clear. Uh, he received the following awards over the course of his career. Army Service Ribbon, National Defense Service Medal, Overseas Ribbon, Non-Commissioned Officers Professional Development Ribbon, and the Army Achievement Medal. Still living in the Tacoma area, he now randomly joins the Oregon National Guard and then promptly goes AWOL and is dropped from the roster. He's uh, he's not doing well. I'm sure that factored into why he left the Army. He's mentally not in a, not in a great tip-top place. Also randomly and briefly opened a karate school. And then this business quickly fails, probably because I don't think he knew much about karate. He's really not doing well. That's fucking weird. That reeks of mental illness. I've got it, Mildred. I put my mind over this matter. I now understand my destiny. I'm a sensei. I've always been a sensei. And it's time I share my karate knowledge with the world. But John, you don't even know any karate. God damn it, woman. You don't know what I know. You don't know what secret classes I've been taking. You don't know how many black belts I have. And then I, I picture him when he's saying that last part. He holds up a regular leather belt that you just use for keeping your pants on that happens to be black as proof of one of his black belts. Uh, let's take a break now from Captain Unraveling and check back in on his future protege after we take a mid-show sponsor break. This feels like a good time as any to do it. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out? Sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. 
To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for listening to those sweet-ass deals, you sweet-ass sacks. Uh, let's get back, back to the story now. Back to 1994. John has left the military, has some serious untreated PTSD, is mentally unraveling, and we'll check in on Lee. Early 1994, Lee's mom, Una, and her boyfriend, Noy, split up. She lost his income now. And she uh, is no longer making enough money to support herself and her son. Uh, that summer, Una hears from a cousin that she can make good money. She takes a maid job in St. Martin, another Caribbean island, a little nation uh, over 900 miles due east of Jamaica, past Puerto Rico. If she brings her son, Lee would have to be enrolled in school there for her to get hired. And they would then be asked about citizenship. So Una decides to leave nine-year-old Lee with some friends now while she works over in St. Martin. So this fucking poor kid. Una has gone from 1994 to 1995, most of each of those years. Uh, seeing her young son only once in the summer of 1995 before school started. Also during the summer of 95, Lee, now 10 years old, goes searching for his dad. And one evening he finds Leslie playing dominoes at the inner city pub in Kingston. Leslie would later recall, up the street, walking up Waltham Park Road, comes walking my boy, my Lee, like out of a dream. This is the first time seeing each other in four years. How sad that Lee had to search his dad out, by the way, not the other way around. Uh, The two only talk for 10 to 15 minutes. Dad probably has to get back to his, you know, it's fucking Domino's game. Hey, mom, I'm excited to see you, little mom. I would love to take you off for some... <laughs> I can't do that fucking Jamaican accent. I'd love to take you for some ice cream, man, just like old times. 
but I got, <laughs> I had it earlier. Now I lost it. I thought I had it. I got, I got 50 bucks riding on this game on. It's my turn. You understand, right? Fuck it. Another time, son. You take care of yourself. I'm a, son, I've been meaning to tell you for a long time that I'm not actually Jamaican. I have a Northwest, I'm from the Northwest. I'm from Idaho. And that's why, uh, you know, I've got to lay low because I don't have a citizenship here. Uh, no, then I pictured him slapping a Jamaican dollar, you know, a coin in his son's hand. Just go, go get some of those grape nuts on Pops. And then poor little Lee goes to the ice cream shop, finds out that uh, one scoop costs two bucks. Wah, wah. Uh, Lee told his dad that he just wanted to see him. Leslie asked where he was living, if he could uh, come visit, to which Lee responded, no, I can't tell you where I live because mom would spank me. What is happening here? Uh, then Leslie just doesn't pursue it. What a fucking coward, man. Uh, Lee saw Leslie a few more times that summer, but never for very long. Uh, according to Carmetta Alvarez, a social worker who worked with Lee after his arrest, he wanted to be rescued by his father. He kept hoping, hoping, hoping that his father would come and save him. He already had his little bag packed. In the end, whether his father wants to admit that or not, he abandoned Lee, even after Lee begged to take him back. That is a very hard thing for a child to accept. Man, that little, the little bag being packed detail is just so, so extra sad. Uh, Leslie admitted to Vanity Fair that he didn't make more effort to have a relationship with his son because, you know, he just didn't want to speak to Una. Okay, how chicken shit. He said uh, if he would have let Lee move back in with him, he would have had to see her on a regular basis. Yeah, that's fucking how it works, you dickhead. Uh, way to put his ego in some uh, inconvenience above the needs of his son. What an what a awesome dad. Uh, summer of 1995, the last time Leslie will see uh, you know, Lee until 2003 when he comes to testify on his son's behalf during Lee's murder trial. So I guess at least he does that. Uh, July of 1996, Lee goes to live with an older cousin, Simone Powell. Simone said that for the most part, Lee was happy. But, you know, sometimes was sad, withdrawn, of course. Once told her, I have no one. I have no real family. Why me? Ugh. Also said that one evening when they were preparing to move to a new apartment, Lee disappeared when they were loading up some boxes. When Simone found him, she asked him, you know, what was wrong? And he just shouted, you just keep moving me. And when Simone said, I've, I've never moved you before. Lee replied, you adults, you always move me. I have no pet, no birds, no cats. I have no address. Touching base again with John now in 1996. Uh, that year, Mildred sided with Muhammad's first wife, Carol Williams, in a dispute about Lindbergh Williams, John and Carol's son, who was visiting his dad at that time. John wanted to leave town with his son, uh, then 13, and just violate a custody agreement. Uh, Mildred said, I convinced him to put Lindbergh on the plane, send him to his mother. When he boarded the plane, John turned around like I wasn't there. I think that is when the hatred for me began. I had betrayed him. So John continuing to unravel, not getting the control, right? Not, not controlling the life around him like he wants. One of this controlling aspect of his personality is what led him to some problems when he was in the military too. Maybe a little too heavy handed with soldiers he was uh, overseeing. Maybe he didn't like officers above him telling him what to do. Let him know it. Uh, by 1997, Mildred had also converted to Islam. Some sources say that John converted this year as well. Sources are all over the fucking place when it comes to when this dude converted to Islam. Literally a 10-year discrepancy. So he seems to have converted to Islam sometime between 1987 and 1997. He was definitely converted by 1997. Uh, as her domestic problems mounted, uh, most of their friends at the mosque sided with John, she said. He had wrongly accused her of having an affair and took the matter to the mosque, she said. As a result, she lost her job as a secretary. She said, I was made to look as if I was incompetent and pathetic. He was telling me I'm not good enough, that I was not a good Muslim. I was not a good mother. He sometimes showed his desire to control in strange ways, she said, once he changed her home telephone number, but then refused to tell her what the new fucking number was. That is absurdly controlling. <laughs> God, that's fucking, that's so embarrassing. Uh, okay, great. Um, hey, we'll just, uh, we'll call you and we have your blood work results. Uh, what, what's a good home phone number? Um, uh, uh, John Muhammad. Uh, excuse me? Uh, 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 John Allen Muhammad. <laughs> 
No, I, I just need your number, ma'am. Uh, uh, John? Uh, John has it. Uh, please just call John. And, and what's John's number? Uh, jo- John Allen Muhammad. You, you, can't, you just have to find him. He's somewhere in the city, I think. God, it's weird. Uh, bouncing back to Jamaica, fall of 1997, Lee asked if he could live with his cousin Simone permanently. And mom said yes. Oh, no, sorry. Simone said yes. Simone said yes. So that's sweet. But it will end badly. Pretty much everything uh, ends badly for Lee. Uh, December of 1997, Una returns home from St. Martin. She's done working over there, at least for the moment. Uh, she knocks on the door of Simone's house to see her son. When Lee sees his mom, he shouts, don't let her take me. She's not going to take me. Yikes. Not the homecoming, homecoming most parents, parents would uh, hope for. Well, Una does take Lee. Simone can't legally stop her. And he'll never live with Simone again. His unstable shitstorm of a childhood continues. By the spring of 1998, Lee is living with other children in a student boarding house now back in St. Anne Parish. His mom fucking left him behind again for St. Martin. Right? Could have left him with family. Family wanted him. And he's like, nope. Nope, I want you. And then JK fucking puts him in a little, uh, you know, boarding school and bounces out of the country again. Uh, Lee becomes withdrawn, quiet at the boarding house. Yeah, I'm sure he's fucking depressed. Other kids, uh, you know, get to go home, visit their family on the weekends, not him. Winsome Maxwell is Lee's homeroom teacher. She notices how sad he is to be left alone on the weekends. And she asks Una if she can spend the weekends, uh, if he can spend the weekends with her and her father, Webster Maxwell, who lives with her. Una says yes. Now Lee quickly develops a bond, you know, a fatherly bond with Webster Maxwell. Yet another adult parental figure that fate will not allow him to stay with. Meanwhile, in Tacoma, John closes the mechanic shop in either 1998 or 1999. He said he closed his business because uh, Mildred was having an affair. He said he confirmed the affair by bugging his phone and recording the conversation. And that's what he'll tell the FBI. Maybe that happened, but I doubt it. Uh, other sources talk about how he closed his business because, you know, he went fucking bankrupt because his business wasn't good. And maybe his business wasn't good because he was fucking crazy and getting crazier all the time. And now back to Jamaica, man. I think I got it again. Uh, summer of 1999, Winston Maxwell asked 14-year-old Lee if he wanted to move in with them. Uh, Lee's happy, excited. Yes, yes, he does want to move in with them. Maxwell then asked to legally adopt him. He's going to have a stable home life, right? Uh, you know, yes, everyone, everyone's in agreement. Let's do this. You know, he hopes he's finally found the father he'd always wanted. But then fucking mama shows up. Mama doesn't care what Lee wants. Both his parents, so fucking selfish. Una calls from Antigua, where she's now living and working, says Maxwell needs to send Lee to her right now. Mails an airline ticket to Maxwell's house. And that'd be great if she had some stable life over in Antigua, you know, nice uh, home for them to live in or something, but she doesn't. Uh, Before that, uh, back to Washington. September of 1999, Mildred and John separate. John moves out. Now shit starts to get really creepy with John. Post-separation, John starts uh, using his key to sneak into the house in the middle of the night. He'll do stuff like stand over his old bed and just watch his, uh, you know, soon-to-be ex-wife sleep. Mildred, uh, pretending to be asleep one time, uh, watched him walk from one side of the room to the other, just, you know, just watching her before finally leaving the house. She's so scared, she goes to court, gets a lifetime restraining order against John. The judge thought Mildred had reason to be scared, even told her she needed to get away from him, maybe move out of the area. So Mildred files for divorce. John does not appreciate this. Mildred said he twice threatened her life around this time. Uh, She said he warned her, you're not going to raise my children. You have become my enemy. And as my enemy, I will kill you. Then on the other occasion, he calls her mom and says that he'll kill, you know, Mildred, which seems even scarier to me to call someone's mom and say you're going to kill their daughter. And then he takes the kids. March 27th, 2000, John tells his wife he's taking their kids shopping. He picks them up from school, tells he's going to take them to, uh, uh, you know, out for a few hours, have them back at the house, you know, in a few hours, a few hours come and go. Then John calls to say he's gotten delayed, but he'll have the kids back soon. He actually called from the airport shortly before he and the kids boarded a plane to the Caribbean island of Antigua. 
Don insisted in court uh, later that he had Mildred's permission to take the kids away. He did not. You know, uh, he fucking kidnapped him. And the court believed her when she said that he kidnapped him. But it wasn't going to be easy to get her kids back right now. She wouldn't see her kids again for a year and a half, not until September 4th, 2001. How is John supporting his kids down in Antigua now where he's not a citizen? Well, it's strongly suspected, seems pretty, you know, definite that he was selling false ID cards, other forged government documents. And he just continues to spiral. Mildred said later in a documentary interview, I had to put my head to a pillow every night and not know where my kids were. I can't articulate that kind of pain. When law enforcement located her kids, returned them to her, Mildred then secretly took them to live in Maryland. Uh, After she left, some friends in Tacoma would tell her that uh, John was looking for and that he was determined to get his kids back. Mildred would say that from time to time, uh, you know, Uh, from the time, excuse me, he took their kids to the day he was arrested for the DC sniper murders. She lived in fear every day of her life that he would show up out of the, out of the blue and just murder her. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, Two timelines about to connect now. Backing up a bit. Late 1999, Lee Boyd Malvo moves to Antigua to be with mom. Something he's not thrilled about. About a year later, October of 2000, uh, John and Lee will meet. They run into each other at Zaza Electronics in Antigua. Lee is now attending a Seventh-day Adventist school. His teachers and friends like him later report that he did well academically, but home life, you know, different story. At one point, uh, while going to school there, Lee was living in a single room shack made out of fucking plywood. No electricity, no running water. And how fun is this? Mom had abandoned him yet again. Ah, way to go, Una, you selfish piece of shit. Way to fuck up your son's adoption into a healthy and happy home, home he wanted to live in, so you could bring him to another country where you just promptly abandoned him yet again. Dude really has two winners for parents. Uh, John and his kids lived a mile down the road from where Lee was staying. John hung around St. John's, uh, the main port in Antigua. Some of the locals knew him as the runner because he would run every morning. Okay, makes sense. Uh, John told people he uh, served in the Gulf War. True, that was true. Also told people he was a member of the Special Forces. Not true. Uh, Wanting everyone to think he was a bigger badass than he was. Sounds like the kind of thing a dude who doesn't know karate but still open to a dojo would do. People later would remember noticing how good John was with children. Leonie Martin, the owner of Zaza Electronics, would tell Vanity Fair, he had this power over them. I admired it. Everyone did. He gave the children discipline and they loved him for it. He was not harsh or unfair. It was discipline mixed with love and care. If they'd done something wrong, he'd say, drop and give me 50. And the children would drop and do 50 push-ups just to please him. Oh man, what a, what a good father figure. Or what a sad, weird guy who desperately wants to control people. What a pathetic dude who craves having power over others but can't get it from adults, so goes after young, vulnerable others. What a great guy. Uh, John became a local hero. He fixed cars, gave medicine to sick kids, gave advice to anyone who needed it. Always seemed to notice when someone was having a bad day, he'd stop and talk to them. Who knows? Maybe he was uh, trying to do right at this time. Trying to trying to wrestle whatever demons he was fighting. What is big deal? He tried to wrestle himself into better man. Uh, according to Lee, he and John met at Zaza Electronics when he saw John and his son playing a mi- Microsoft flight simulator. Reminded him of playing with a, a paper airplane with his own father. Lee said to John, the man I met was not a monster. This was a guy who could have been anyone. Once he earned my trust, it was pretty much complete. Um, imagine it being a cult of two. That's a good way to describe what's coming. Very, very small cult. The smallest. One leader, one follower. Uh, just enough people to do a lot of horrible shit. Uh, by the late fall of 2000, according to some locals, nearly everyone in Antigua knew that if they, if you gave John between $1,000 and $3,000, he could make you about whatever, about any kind of forged document you wanted. Forged visas, uh, forged work permits, you know, get, him a, get people into the U.S. He found a lucrative way to make money off the grid in the black market. And in December of 2000, John sold Lee's mom, Una, some papers to get her into the U.S. Una had heard that John was a guy who could get, you know, people a visa. 
She reconnected with her son again, right? She was constantly in and out of uh, his life. And she and Lee went to John's house one day. Lee saw the same man from the electronics shop. He now meets John Jr., who John called uh, Little Man, same nickname Lee's dad had uh, once given him. Lee later wrote in his diary, Little Man and I hit it off when we learned we both wanted to be pilots. I made the girls laugh and immediately was made to feel welcome. Every day after this meeting, I visited Mr. Muhammad. When he was absent, I spent time with the children. Mostly, I would go on an errand to give him information or money. I'd make whatever excuse I could just to be back in his presence. Plus, I loved the vitality of his children. They took me into their hearts as if they had known me for a lifetime. This fucking kid just craves a family so bad. Una's new boyfriend had recently given her money to travel around to purchase clothes, household items to resell. Uh, instead, Una now uses that money for the fake visa that she gets from, you know, John. Not, not for two fake visas. Nope. Not one for her, one for, uh, you know, baby boy. Just one for her. Her boyfriend had plans for them to open up a business and restaurant together, was even building a house for the three of them to live together in in Antigua. Una was not down with that plan, though, unbeknownst to him. She seems to be becoming more and more of a terrible person all the time. Uh, after getting her fake visa, Una leaves for the U.S. Tells her boyfriend she'd gone to the island of St. Martin for a business trip. Calls him a few days later to tell him, uh, no, she's actually in the U.S., but promise to come back soon, but she won't. She fleeced that guy, just used him. Also completely abandoned her 14-year-old son a fucking another time to go live in Fort Myers, Florida now. Uh, Una would later tell Vanity Fair, I always knew where my Lee was. I tried to telephone him. I didn't abandon him. All of these people saying these things about me, abandoning Lee, they don't know. They're telling lies, lies. And I will clear my name and they're going to have to pay. Well, no one had to pay dipshit because you're a fucking liar to yourself. You did abandon your son. That's not like someone feed themselves a bunch of bullshit rather than confronting the fact that they've chosen to be a terrible fucking person, a horrible mom. I hope Una's life is uh, currently in fucking tatters. Her and uh, Lee's dad, Leslie, you know, fuck them both. Uh, with her mom now gone, Lee now moves out of her old boyfriend's house. The dude she'd fleeced moves into a small shack with new, uh, no running water, that one we talked about. No electricity. He had no electricity because he couldn't pay any bills because he's 14, been abandoned. Uh, for a while, Lee goes back and forth between this shack and his mom's old boyfriend's house. This dude, given the alias of Thomas and sources, was a kind man who let Lee stay with him even after his uh, you know, mom fleeced him. Thomas even interviewed later and said that Lee was always welcome in his home. Also said that never liked John Muhammad. Didn't like Lee hanging around that dude, but didn't feel like he had the authority to stop him from spending time with John because, you know, wasn't his guardian. So not everyone on the island thinks that this uh, dude's a, a cool dad. Late 2000, Lee becomes sick with rheumatic fever. He writes in his diary, I had a, a terrible fever. Oh, I'm sorry. No, this was not diary. This is a, uh, this is a later uh, interview. It says, uh, I had a terrible fever. My joints ached. It was a recurrence of rheumatic fever. I contracted as a child. I was not able to get out of bed to call for help or go for food. My tonsils were swollen. I was unable to eat. Two days went by. I was in that condition, but I could not get out of bed. Uh, then Mr. Muhammad came by one day, found the back door slightly ajar. Upon entering, he saw me in bed, sweating, almost delirious with fever, called his personal taxi driver, lifted me out of bed, carried me in his arms because I was too weak to walk, took me to the doctor, then to his place of residence and introduced me to Mrs. Douglas. I was fed with fluids, soup. Uh, he was able to get me medication within a few days. I was up and about. What a truly amazing uh, that, uh, that was. He spent a lot of time ensuring that I was okay and never asked for payment. So now he's really invested in this dude. Not long after this, in January of 2001, Lee Malvo moves in with John for a short time. One day, John brings Lee to Zaza Electronics, introduces him as his son from the US. The owner later remembered Lee speaking with an American accent. This is weird. Uh, Lee started to show up to the store every day to play games now with uh, John Jr. John was starting to mold Lee into who he wanted him to be. He has Lee convert to Islam. He teaches Lee what he thought he knew about honor and discipline. They started practicing calisthenics in the yard every day. 
maybe karate. Sources don't say karate, but I feel like there was a strong chance that uh, John was teaching Lee some kind of weird karate, but not really karate he'd made up. John also made Lee and John Jr. listen to tapes before bed, tapes to play music, followed by readings from self-help books uh, or Nation of Islam teachings. So that's awesome. And apparently no one thought any of this was strange. At least no one interviewed later by reporters. Most people around town seem to think that uh, John, again, great dude. Awesome, loving dad. Kids are extremely well-behaved. Uh, but then Lee began to change. Uh, Lee begins to change now, excuse me. Uh, his new best friend at his uh, new school, John Schusinker, uh noticed he began to argue with his classmates about Islam at a Seventh-day Adventist school, which, you know, makes sense. He suddenly became really interested in guns, too, and stopped coming to school, right? He had more to learn with Papa John than school could ever teach him. I'm mad at myself for not thinking to call him Papa John earlier. Pretty sure I'm going to call him Papa John most of the rest of this episode. Uh, Papa John taught Lee what he believed it meant to be a man as the oldest sibling now. He, uh, he basically been informed, uh, informally adopted. Lee's uh, suddenly in charge when Papa John's not present. Papa John's other kids don't seem to uh, mind. Papa John's daughter, Taliba, says that Lee was uh, fun and supportive. He fit naturally into a big brother role. Papa John implemented a strict structure. <laughs> I am picturing the guy from Papa John's Pizza now in this story, which is funny to me. Uh, uh, Papa John implemented a strict st- structure. Better ingredients, better pizza. No, uh, routine in the house. He never used corporal punishment. Instead, he made the kids do push-ups for bad behavior. For example, if the kids couldn't work out a disagreement themselves, they'd have to do push-ups for a full 30 minutes. That's a lot of fucking push-ups. Also rewarded for good behavior. If they studied Nation of Islam teachings, they'd get cash, uh, you know, that they could share. So that's not good. They're allowed to, uh, you know, not good that they're getting rewarded that way for Nation of Islam teachings. Uh, they're allowed to keep 60% of their money, had to save the other 40%. John also good about giving his children one-on-one attention, something that Lee craved. And you know what? For a guy who's kidnapped his kids and threatened to kill their mother on numerous occasions, and broken into their house to watch their mom sleep. And for a guy who's now making a living selling forged government documents, who also strongly pressures his children to study racist and crazy-ass teachings of Louis Farrakhan. For all of that, Papa John does seem to be a pretty great dad, right? Better ingredients, better kids. Uh, the spring of 2001, immigration and law enforcement start to catch on to Papa John's legal forging operations. Papa John even has to leave home for a few days to hide on the island while police search for him. March 11, 2001, Papa John is arrested at Antigua Airport then escapes custody two days later. No, t- no details given regarding how he slipped away. Uh, he arranges for his kids to move to a safe house under the care of his girlfriend. Lee is told to make sure they stay away from the police and continue running the forgery business. Like, like a good dad, keep keep forging. Come on, <laughs> come on. That's, you know, that's what dad needs. Lee stops attending school March of 2001, two weeks after, you know, he's got a forge. After uh, two weeks after Papa John escapes custody, Lee awakes to find John in the house with him. And Papa John tells him it is time for phase two, but doesn't elaborate on what that means. Who knows? Maybe that was just his weird way of saying uh, he really had to take a shit or something. I'd love to say in chat, but, uh, you know, time for phase two. Ah, I knew I shouldn't have had that fifth slice of uh, Papa John's pizza. It's time for phase two. Uh, for the next two months, John continued to elude authorities. He must not have uh, been that much of a law enforcement priority, and he kept running this forgery business. Papa John's girlfriend does the household chores while uh, Lee helps John run the business in Antigua. Also continues with his big brother slash backup dad role. Uh, tutors John's kids for up to four hours a day, takes them to the park, tries to avoid the police, begins to feel overwhelmed by the pressure of suddenly having to be the man of the family, a family he hasn't even known that long, not actually a part of. Uh, he's worried about paying rent, struggling to find uh, new customers for Papa John's business. When he does find some, he uses that money to buy food for the family. He's doing all this while Papa John's hiding. Uh, feels he should have some say in how the money is spent now, but no one else agrees. 
This is also weird, a weird position Papa John has put this kid in. By May of 2001, Lee is so overwhelmed that he snaps. John Jr. wants to play with him, and when he punches his arm, Lee, quote, picks him up and slams him. John Jr. begins to withdraw now. Lee uses the money he's making running Papa John's forgeries to make sure the other kids eat three times a day. He's only eating once a day, usually leftover food. Uh, Taliba recalls later asking him if he was eating enough, and he would just tell her he wasn't hungry. Taliba was the one who was still close to him by this point. Selena, John Jr., staying away because he's irritated and harsh. Yeah, he's got, he's got a lot of shit on his plate. He's just barely 16 doing all this. Just as Lee felt that he was going to collapse under all this pressure, Papa John returns, comes bearing gifts for everyone, except for Lee. Uh, then John's kids complain about Lee being too authoritarian while John's away. John and Lee go for a walk. Lee tells John he feels like he's failed him. And that's when John karate chops him in the throat. Face three, motherfucker. No. Uh, John told him he didn't fail him. He did a good job taking care of the kids and he hugged him. Lee was overcome with emotion and cried. This poor fucker. Like he has, he has the family he always wanted, even though it's a weird family that just uses him. Uh, has a father figure who uses him, but he sees it as approving of him. He's going to do anything that John yeah, wants, you know, to keep all this. May 24, 2001, John, his kids and Lee, all with forged documents, fly to Miami. Okay, got to hand it to Papa John. Clearly pretty good at forging some documents and nice that he took Lee. Even though in the long run, it would have been better if he left him. But Lee reunites now with, uh, reunites with his deadbeat mom who wants him back, even though she has no fucking life plan at all for how to take care of him. Cycle continues. John and the kids fly to Bellingham, Washington without Papa John's kind of adopted son he clearly doesn't care that much for. Just used him when it was convenient. Once in Bellingham, Papa John and the kids stay in uh, hotels or with friends. Uh, John working odd jobs for money. Meanwhile, Mildred continued to try and track this dude down from Tacoma, get her kids back. Then on August 13th, 2001, Lee enrolls as a junior at Cypress Lake High School in Fort Myers, Florida. He's back at another school. He and his mom are cleaning rooms together at a resort for $25 each. Uh, Lee is allowed to keep half his earnings. And this is $25. Uh, not sure if it's a room, but didn't specify. A room? Or a day. I hope a room, but I, I doubt it. Now, how generous of mom to let him keep half of the money. Uh, Lee wanted to uh, go to college, eventually become a pilot. He wants to someday own a flying service back down in the Caribbean. He takes a college entrance pretest, does very well. School counselor wants him to take the SAT, but can't because doesn't have a social security number. He's not supposed to be in this country. So now Una reaches out to Papa John, says she wants you know you know him to adopt Lee so he can become a U.S. citizen and be able to go to college. And then Una buys her son a bus ticket to Bellingham but then changes her mind, of course, and hides it from him. She's fucking crazy. Uh, late August, 2001, John registers his kids for public school in Washington State now. Uh, their names match the names on Mildred's writ of habeas corpus. Habeas corpus is when a person reports an unlawful detention or imprisonment to a court and requests that the court order the custodian of the person to bring the person or children to court to determine uh, whether the detention is lawful. Uh, usually, used to have an imprisoned person brought to court, but often used in custody battles. And I do realize that children are people. Uh, Mildred had gotten one of these for her kids, you know, months and months earlier. Local police now pick up the kids, finally, give them back to Mildred for a, you know, emotional, uh, you know, reunification, a reunion. And uh, now he has a court date regarding custody that he has to attend. John does. Papa John's fucking furious. He chases Mildred down a hall of the courthouse, tells her, you have become my enemy. And as my enemy, I will kill you. That uh, says that you know threat again. Maybe that was a, maybe there was a I don't know. Anyway, uh, not sure how he was never brought up on kidnapping charges or any other charges. Shortly after losing his kids, this is the second time he's had kids and lost them. By the way, Papa John calls up new number one son Lee Boyd Malvo. Says Lee, they took the children. Lee writes about how he felt uh, later from prison. He says I was able to identify with that loss. I had never seen him indecisive. I'd never heard that much pain. He spoke to something in me. 
that void that yearned to be filled. I wanted to have a father to love, uh, to love me like that. I wanted to know someone cared as deeply for me. When he said he needed me to help him get get the children so that we could once again be a family, it opened up the floodgates for the kid who ran away to his father five years earlier, but who was rejected. Lee told his mom now that John is ready to adopt him. You know, he's gonna help him get into college. John backs this up, calls Una, says he'll do anything he can to help Lee. And Una is furious. Of course she is. I don't think she actually wanted her son to be successful on any level. I think she probably wanted him to be as miserable as she was. And I'm aware that I'm reading a lot into their relationship. I actually know very little about, but based on the info I have, that's what I think. So now Lee decides to bide his time until he can run away. Meanwhile, Papa John's ex, Mildred, changes her name, flees across the country to Clinton, Maryland with her kids. Touched on that earlier. Uh, Clinton sits just outside the DC Beltway. So you can see where this is all going. Papa John's friend, Robert Holmes, later tells Vanity Fair, I think that after his kids got taken away, John had a nervous breakdown. I'm not a professor or a doctor, but John changed in a million subtle ways after his kids were taken away. He'd spend all day some days just crying. All he could think of was getting his kids back. Dude is fucking broke at this point. And I don't feel sorry for him. He was a controlling, abusive asshole who refused to get help for the shit he was dealing with after coming back from the Middle East. After his wife leaves him, he could have chosen to handle the separation like a grown-up, but didn't. Snuck into the house, watched his ex sleep like a fucking creep, threatened her life, then just straight up kidnapped the kids. Then after fleeing the Caribbean before getting arrested for forgery, you know, heading back to the States, he ends up having to pay the piper. What goes around truly comes around for him in this case. And now she did to him what he did to her. But for a very different reason. She was afraid he was going to kill her because he had been telling her he was going to kill her. Mildred living in fear, terrified that John's going to come after her and find her. Before she fled, she claimed that John had contacted her, threatened to, her, uh, threatened to kill her again. Uh, you know, said he'd kill her. No one would find her body. Uh, Lee will later confirm after his arrest that Papa John's hatred for Mildred was the motive for the shootings. He wanted to punish Mildred for taking the kids. What a fucking crazy way to do that, to kill a bunch of other random people who had nothing to do with the situation. John eventually used connections within Devoted Dads, a nonprofit father's rights group to try and find Mildred. That particular organization doesn't seem to be around anymore. Uh, being connected with one of the DC snipers, you know, probably probably not great for fundraising efforts. After hitting up every family member, an old friend and acquaintance he can think of, John does find out that Mildred and the kids are in the D.C. area. This, of course, is what brings John and Lee to D.C. And they they will figure out where they live. Uh, This is also what kicks off a cross-country rampage. These two will soon target business owners, uh, learning their routine so they can attack and rob them. According to Lee later, John would have him kill people, then evaluate him, then critique how he did afterwards so he could get better at the next murder. Strange, dark game. These two are starting to play. Uh, before they play it, though, they got to they gotta reconnect. They got to do some training. In October of 2001, Lee Malvo, having no idea what's in store for him across the country, gets himself a bus ticket, runs away to Washington. The day before he ran away, Una told him that it was her way or the highway. Man, Lee did not hit the parental jackpot. One parent abandoned him. The other should have abandoned him. You know, at least abandoned him completely instead of just doing it over and over again. Fucking up numerous chances he had of stability. Uh, Lee packs up his belongings, sneaks out at 4.30 in the morning. October 20th, 2001, Lee shows up at Lighthouse Mission in Bellingham, Washington, where John had been living. It's a homeless shelter that is still there on Holly Street. Lee's family life sucked so fucking bad. He wants a dad so bad, he was willing to take a bus across the country to live with new dad in a homeless shelter. John introduces Lee there as his oldest, uh, older son. Once again, Lee speaks in an American accent, at least tries to. Hopefully his accent skill is better than mine. Uh, mission staff would tell reporters later that they felt like something was off. They knew John had a son from the first from his first marriage, but they thought he was older than Lee. Yeah, because he was. 
Debbie Lindbergh. Uh, 40-year-old John enraged about losing his kids, enraged about life. This is a guy who was killing it right out of high school, right? Great job, new clothes, new car. He was the man. Now, 20 years later, and his life is in shambles. He wants someone to blame, and he focuses all his attention on Lee. Uh, While John and Lee live in this homeless shelter together, they strengthen what will later be called their disturbing father-son dynamic. John is extremely controlling of Lee from the moment he arrives. Tells Lee that it's time for him to graduate to the next level. (laughs) Whatever the fuck that means, he's insane. A lot of of phases and levels with this moron. Starts having him eat only one meal a day. This kid's 16 at this time. And, uh, you know, should have been eating five meals a day. Uh, Papa John creates an exercise diet program for Lee, which borders on starvation. At one point, all Lee's allowed to eat is crackers and honey. Apparently reaching the next level revolves mainly around poor nutrition or being, you know, very skinny. Maybe it's important to slip through small openings at the next level. Maybe there's a lot of situations at the next level that involve sitting in like rickety furniture that'll break if you're too heavy or something. Uh, John is working with Donald Holland when Lee shows up in Washington, a man who renovated houses and uh, hires, you know, day laborers from time to time from the shelter. Lee starts working with John occasionally and he begins to see Papa John's anger appear more often. Uh, one day while they're playing basketball, Lee accidentally hits John in the face with the ball. Lee said he was sorry, tried to keep playing. When Lee grabbed at him the next, at the next drive, uh, John elbows him in the ribs, then twists his wrist and throws him on the ground. Lee says later, he looks at me with a hollow stare. I've never seen him anger, or, or I've never seen so much anger aimed at me before. I immediately asked what I did to make him so angry. He stared at me and then walked away. If I had been thinking then, I would have seen what he truly thought about me. But I was too busy blaming myself for the incident. I swore that never again would I make him that mad at me. Man, John is a ticking time bomb. He's 40 years old, living in a home shelter, right? After making decent money in Antigua. Currently has no relationship with his son from his first marriage or with his kids from his second marriage. This control freak, this wannabe special forces alpha male, not in charge of anything. His ego not getting stroked from having a good job, from having a loving romantic partner, from being able to be a father. As crazy as this fucker was, uh, he did care a great deal about his kids. And, you know, not counting how he treated their mom, uh, did seem to be a good dad in some ways. You know, gave his kids structure, love, discipline, didn't abuse them. People respected the way he parented. Uh, But now he doesn't have anyone really respecting him for anything other than Lee. And Lee can't be that impressed with him, can he? I mean, he moved across the country hoping uh, Papa John could help him get into college. Now he's living in a fucking homeless shelter, getting thrown to the ground on the basketball court, not going to school, picking up occasional day laborer jobs. November 8, 2001, Lee starts to go to school again. Things are looking up for a moment. He begins taking classes at Bellingham High. Things go a little bit better with Papa John, kind of. Every day after school, Lee and John start lifting weights together at the YMCA. They also go to the local gun range at the Tacoma Sportsman Club to practice shooting. And I don't love that. Hitting targets at the gun range, yeah, great, super fun. But maybe not when you're also living in a homeless shelter. Maybe want to direct a little more time and energy to getting a steady job, to trying to figure out how to provide for yourself instead of, you know, getting better at shooting shit. Seems uh, like a bit of a red flag. Uh, On days they weren't going to the gun range, they'd go visit some of Papa John's new friends in the area, play video games, watch movies. Also worrisome, right? Look for a fucking job. Focus on changing your life in small positive ways. I'm guessing he wasn't uh, doing that because uh, really all he wanted to do was kill Mildred, right? Then he'd focus on the next steps. Only real next step for him is how do I get away with destroying Mildred? Uh, Lee says around this time they watched The Matrix at least 100 times. Of course, right? Love that movie, but it's also very popular with a lot of conspiracy nuts and just other fucking lunatics who start to think they're Neo, start to think they're going to unplug from all this. Uh, Also watched an instructional videotape called Carlos Hathcock, Marine Sniper, right? Big red flag, watching the sniper tapes. Uh, Carlos uh, Hathcock, rest in peace. Fucking legend, by the way. Uh, Dude was the Marine's best sniper in Vietnam. 93 confirmed kills, 
singled out by the Viet Cong, who put a huge bounty on his head, put a bounty on the head of the man they called White Feather because the White Feather he would keep in a band on his bush hat, uh, dude alleged to have killed every counter sniper the Viet Cong sent after him and uh, supposedly killed uh, another sniper once by shooting him in the fucking eye, shot him through the scope of that dude's own rifle, which means, of course, that that guy was just about to shoot him. That's insane, but that's the legend. Uh, Lee always wanted to play war games when he hung out with Papa John's friends. One that stood out to him was Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon sniper game that debuted on November 13th, 2001, where a player picks tools, hide and plays, you know, before assassinating targets. Later, uh, Lee later told a psychologist that he was good at the game because he learned how to keep his emotions down. Yeah, I guess he had a lot of anger issues from uh, the fucked up child that he had, you know, that he was probably not properly dealing with. People at the shelter later remembered noticing how incredibly controlling John uh, was becoming with Lee more and more all the time. Uh, Lee wouldn't speak unless he had permission from John. Uh, they were always together. The mission manager later reported that one day Lee came into the cafeteria, was talking with a few of the other people there, and it wasn't like they were talking about national security or anything. They were just BSing. But then John came in, shot Lee a look, and instantly Lee stopped talking, put his head down, kept eating. The look that John gave Lee, it was a look of total domination. And Papa John... Better ingredients. Uh, needed to feel in control. Now Lee is the only person or thing in the world he actually has control over. Uh, Lee was now making Lee listen to tapes that contained messages from Malcolm X, Louis Farrakhan, right? Prominent NOI leaders pumping him full of hate. That's great. Uh, Dewey Cornell, Lee's psychologist later, will say, by now John Muhammad was controlling everything in Lee Malvo's life, from his exercise to his diet to what he was thinking. This is what some psychologists call a disassociative state. It's the idea that through total control of everything someone is eating and thinking and doing, that person can be made to do things an otherwise rational person would not. And all of it sounds preposterous unless you go through the process. But how else can you explain Jim Jones? How else can you explain Heaven's Gate? Right? Interesting that he compared John and Lee, not to uh, other true crime duos, but to cults. It really had become a cult of two. Meanwhile, Una was searching for Lee. She started calling the lighthouse mission often, but was never able to reach him. Uh, sad that uh, she actually would have been the uh, better option for Lee at this point. December 14, 2001, Una does finally get through to, uh, to John, confronts him about having kidnapped Lee. John tells her, I have a job to do, and I can't rely on some cokehead to do it. All right, following this call, to Una's credit, she gets on a, a bus, comes to Washington to help her son. I guess she's not the worst mom ever. Soon, Reverend Al Archer, head of the mission, will pick her up from a Bellingham bus station, and he'll drive her to a Bellingham PD police department uh, to speak with law enforcement and within a few, you know, police station. And within a few hours, Lee is back with his mom for like the fucking 80th time. And what did the two of them do? Well, now they both stay at the lighthouse mission and Papa John gets kicked the fuck out. I'll have to find better ingredients, better pizza elsewhere. I don't even know if that's their slogan. I think uh, now he's really hit rock bottom. Just uh, had Lee taken away from him. Got to feel like the third time he's lost parental rights, even though he's not Lee's dad. And he's been booted from a homeless shelter. He's sitting rock bottom. Uh, luckily or not luckily for the story, he has friends who let him stay with them. Uh, you know, does some couch surfing. December 19, 2001, Lee Malvo and his mom, Una James, were arrested by immigration officials. Local police had alerted the INS after seeing their immigration papers and recognizing they were forgeries. Una now held in a detention center. Lee detained in a juvenile facility. A month later, January 23, 2002, Una and Lee are released to an INS safe house while authorities prepare for their deportation. If only Lee had been deported, he might be living a semi-normal life down in the Caribbean somewhere now. Maybe working as that pilot instead of sitting in an American prison. Mission head L. Archer tried to give them a ride when they were released, but they said they needed to be somewhere secret that John couldn't, uh, you know, find out about. Una later said Lee was paranoid, thought they were being followed. Was he actually relieved to no longer be with Papa John? Maybe not. Two days after they made it to their uh, safe house, Lee runs away. 
Then Una finds out he is with fucking Papa John. Catches him on a city bus. Phase four, right around in the city bus and think about phase five. She asked him why he was uh, running from her and he just ran away again. John was now taking lead to the gun range every day. Uh, uh, you know, they also practice uh, shooting uh, at a tree stump at a property on one of John's or on the property of one of John's friends. John told Lee to imagine killing people while he's shot. Also told him in order to become what I need you to be, you have to die. Your morals, your fears. Lee Boyd Malvo has to die. And uh, that doesn't really seem like anything to, to worry about, actually. Uh, Papa John, I mean, I feel like he's kind of entering a new period of stability again because I tell my son Kyler shit like that. I mean, almost every day. I mean, I'll say stuff like, in order for you to become who I need you to become, son, you have to die. Your morals, your fears. Kyler Beasy Cummins has to go. I'll say this to him oftentimes at night uh, while he's in bed. You know, like he'll be laying in his bed. I'll be standing in the hallway and I'll just say shit like that through, through a cracked door opening. Just open enough for him to see half my face and just one of my eyes. And after I say it, I'll just silently stare at him, unblinking, not smiling, just real stone face. Well, very slowly, I just close the door. That's some good dad one-on-one shit right there. Obviously kidding. Uh, John gave Lee his first test to see if he'd become who he needed him to be at the end of January. John took Lee to a parking garage in Bellingham, told Lee that a woman's going to be coming out of the garage at 1 a.m. with a bag of cash from a restaurant. And he wants Lee to shoot her and steal the bag of money. Lee gets uh, set up in the garage, just like Papa John wants him to be. The woman comes out to her car, drops off her bag, starts the car, while Lee watches her uh, through the scope of his rifle. But then she realizes she forgot something and he has to go back inside. Lee is able to uh, run down there, steal the bag, and not shoot her. Later, he'll say he was relieved, and then go meet John at a bus stop uh, for a bus heading to Tacoma. I wonder if whoever that lady you know, is, if she knows that these psychos almost killed her that day. I hope not. I, I don't think I would want to know that. Early 2002, Lee drops out of high school. Right, he's hiding from his mom. He's hiding from immigration officials. Live with Papa John. Surfing couches. Sleeping in a truck John had somehow purchased. Maybe he used the money they stole from that lady in the parking garage to get it. Uh, the Sith Master made a daily schedule for a Sith apprentice that included exercise and training missions. During these missions, these two weirdos would hunt each other uh, in local woods. Papa John also trained Lee on how to overcome interrogation. Once chained him to a tree while it was snowing to mentally harden him. Must have learned about that during his special forces training he never had. Uh, Lee uh, went along with all this according to his own testimony and testimony of experts later because he was desperate for John's love and respect. Wanted to prove himself to Papa John. Poor man's Darth Vader, a.k.a. Anakin Skywalker, wants to please poor man's Emperor Palpatine, a.k.a. Darth Sidious. To continue with his Star Wars analogy, uh, Lee is ready to fully commit to the dark side. He'll prove that with his first murder carried out at Papa John's request. Better ingredients, better murders. February 16th, 2002. On that cold winter's day, 21-year-old Kenya Cook is shot, not from a sniper's bullet, uh, fired from far away, but at point-blank range, actually, by Lee Marvo at her aunt's home in Tacoma. Lee shot Kenya. She uh, opened the door. Bullet went through her right nostril into her skull. Kenya's six-month-old baby was upstairs. Shot with a 45 caliber pistol owned by Earl Dancy Jr., a friend of Muhammad's who was uh, later sued for loaning Papa John that gun. Kenya was not the intended victim. John Muhammad originally targeted Issa Nichols, Kenya's aunt. Issa had been the accountant for the auto shop Papa John and his ex-wife Mildred had owned. And she was close friends with Mildred and she had turned against John during the custody battle. Lee later told a psychologist uh, that this shooting was a test. It happened just two days before his 17th birthday. Holy shit. Lee was told to knock on the door, shoot Issa in the forehead. Issa and her niece had just returned from the store. Kenya was the one who uh, went to the door. If Issa had, you know, she would have died instead. 
hopefully she doesn't have a bunch of survivor's guilt. Uh, Kenya was, Kenya was uh, living with her aunt because she wanted to save up money, excuse me, to go to culinary school. It was her dream to open up her own restaurant one day. How the fuck could Lee do this, right? He had never exhibited violent tendencies before. How could he want John's approval that badly? Lee later explained to a psychologist that he was able to do what he did by zoning out, pushing aside all his emotions as he had learned training with John, right? John had specifically been training him to do this for months. Wasn't able to do it without guilt, though. After he killed Kenya, uh, he contemplated suicide, he said. He even wrote a note to John's niece, Latoria Williams, who he'd met through John, obviously. Uh, called himself a walking time bomb. Wrote, uh, was my purpose here on the godforsaken planet to be banned, shamed, and disapproved? Why am I here? I've had a hard life, believe it or not. No father and a mother who hate. No, that's understatement. She has disbarred me from her. As I have a father who I know is going to have to kill me for a righteous society to prevail. Woo. Uh, wow. How much uh, mumbo jumbo and Papa John been pushing into this dude's fucking head. Shit sounds like something a cult member would uh, say or write. Borderline gibberish. At the end of May 2002, John finds out where Mildred and the children are living. Uh-oh. Heading into the summer of 2002, John and Lee head out on a cross-country murder spree. It'll take them to Los Angeles, Tucson, uh, Clearwater, Florida, Denton, Texas, Hammond, Louisiana, and more places before they arrive in D.C. at the beginning of September. And then they'll kind of bounce back and forth out of the D.C. area a little bit. Uh, March 19, 2002, 60-year-old Jerry Taylor is shot and killed on a golf course in Tucson. Lee Malva would take credit for this killing. Said he shot and killed Jerry from long range as he practiced chip shots on a fucking golf course practice green at Fred Anke Golf Course at Tucson's uh, southeast side. He used Papa John's Bushmaster 223, right? A uh, weapon he had picked up in Tacoma, an AR-15 assault rifle that looked, uh, definitely has like a military grade look to it. Not exactly uh, sure how he had it modified. Clearly he had an incredible scope on it to hit long range shots that they were end up hitting. And this shot, Papa John, excellent marksman, trained Lee to be the same. I've never shot one of these rifles, but I watched a few YouTube videos and, uh, you know, some of these guys shooting these things incredibly accurately. Uh, August 1st, 2002, 58-year-old John Gaeta shot in the neck by Lee Malvo in Hammond, Louisiana. He'll survive his injuries and in 2010 received an apology letter from Lee. Uh, Gaeta became the sniper's mark when he arrived at a mall about 8.20 p.m. It was almost closing time. Uh, he parked quickly, was just rushing into fucking Sears, pick up some new dad shoes. While inside, Malvo or Papa John slashed one of Gaeta's tires. Shortly after 9 p.m., Gator returns to his truck, starts it up, realizes he has a flat, pulls under a street light in the mall parking lot to change it. Two men in dark clothes uh, soon approach him, ask him whether or not the mall is still open. Gator responds that some stores are. The men walk off, return about five minutes later. Uh, do you need any help? One of them asks. No, I'm okay. Gator replies. Looks like you have a flat tire. Other man replies, chuckling under his breath. Men walk off again. Uh, Gator doesn't see them for several minutes until he uh, goes to the bed of his Chevy Silverado to retrieve his spare tire. From there, he sees a shadow slinking alongside the truck. Gator looks closer, he says. The figure darts to the front of his vehicle. Thinking teenagers are playing a prank on him, he meets the figure on the other side of the truck, asks flatly, what are you doing? Lee Malvo then comes around the door, makes eye contact, produces a 22 caliber revolver, shoots him from a distance of about five feet away. Gator said he kind of had a smirk on his face, like, I'm going to kill you. I remember thinking, this is the end of my life tonight. The bullet pierces Gator's neck, exits his back, just below the shoulder, his first thought is of his wife, his family, and friends. His second is, uh, you know, but but it was his second thought, excuse me, that saved his life. He said, I knew that I, unless I fell to the ground, he would be shooting me again. And he explained how he played possum while Malvo snatched the wallet from his pants pocket. After Ma Malvo and uh, Muhammad fled, Gator then runs to a service station. He's a tough son of a bitch. Uh, wasn't in much pain and actually thought it, it was a prank for a little bit. Uh, tells witnesses at the service station that he might have been uh, shot with a paintball gun, but then one of them's like, uh, but sir, you're bleeding. 
Dude goes to the hospital. Doctors tell him he uh, dodged damage to his spine and arteries, and he was released within an hour. Fucking crazy. He was both very unlucky and very lucky that night. September 5th, 2002, 55-year-old Paul Arufa shot five times outside of uh, Margelina, his restaurant in Clinton, Maryland. Apparently fucking indestructible. He survives his injuries. He shot with a 22 caliber handgun. It's late, 10.30 p.m. Paul leaves the restaurant, puts his laptop and briefcase in the back of his car, gets in, shuts the door, then sees a flash of light to his left just a millisecond before his uh, window explodes. Here's gunshots. He's robbed of his laptop and $3,500. Paul was in surgery for seven hours, put on a breathing tube for three days. After 10 days, he was released from the hospital. The shooting occurred near Mildred's home, and that was intentional. Part of Papa John's master plan, shoot her later, not have her death be traced back to him as a suspect. Just have her be one of many people in the area killed by a deranged lunatic. Have her death just be not the, just another random killing. That's why all of this was done. Uh, Mildred's still living in constant fear of John. She always checked the doors, even the roof of her house to make sure that John hadn't tried to break in or wasn't fucking hiding somewhere. She was so scared she wouldn't befriend anyone in the area, didn't want to increase the odds that someone could be contacted by John, that he'd uh, use them to find her. What a terrible way to live. Uh, Lee later said that while they were stalking Mildred, they were also scouting businesses for robberies. Uh, Lee later told the producers for an episode of Monster My Family that he climbed up a fence, walked up to Paul, shot him, stole his bag, and just walked away. Afterwards, John told him, you're ready. I've created a fucking monster. You're ready. God, how creepy. This guy reminds me of Charles Manson. Brainwashing some unfortunate soul into doing his sick bidding. You know, Charles Manson had the family. This guy just has uh, the son. On September 10th, 2002, John purchases a 1990 Chevy Caprice from Sure Shot Auto Sales in Trenton, New Jersey. <laughs> that is such a <laughs> such a used car lot name. Sure Shot Auto Sales. I have no idea if that's their jingle. Like, get your Sure Shot. You just need a Sure Shot. And you're back on track, auto sales. Uh, they used the money from the LaRuffo shooting to make the purchase. Uh, John and Lee modified the car to serve as a, as a mobile base for future shootings. They drilled a hole in the trunk so they could uh, shoot from inside. Also, how fucking ridiculous is it? They bought a car to be used as a roving, fucking rolling sniper kind of base from SureShot. Yikes. Uh, one man would shoot while the other uh, drove was the plan. September 14th, 2002, 22-year-old Rupinder Oberoi becomes the first victim of a shot from the Sure Shot Auto Sales Caprice. Uh, he was wounded after being shot outside of Hillendale Beer and Wine in Silver Spring, Maryland, where he worked. Shooting occurred around 10, 10 p.m. He was helping the owner close shop for the night. All of a sudden, heard a loud bang like a firecracker on the 4th of July, said Rupinder, an immigrant to the U.S. from India. He said, I didn't feel anything at first, but after five or six seconds, suddenly I was not able to breathe and I fell down. An off-duty Washington cop came to Oberoi's aid when he was shot, called an ambulance, and the ambulance, an emergency medical technician worked on him. I heard them say, he's not going to make it. It's really bad. I was frightened. I thought that this was it. This is where I'm going to die, Oberoi said. He suffered damage to his kidneys and liver, lost a portion of his stomach from a single bullet. They shot him with that Bushmaster, but, you know, he lived. On September 15th, 2002, 32-year-old Muhammad Rashid is shot and wounded while closing three roads liquor in Brandywine, Maryland. He'll later identify Lee Malvo as the shooter in court. Uh, so it was another close range shot this time. Uh, just after midnight, September 21st, 2002, 41-year-old Millen Wolder-Miriam dies after being shot three times outside a liquor store in Atlanta. Georgia prosecutors never filed any charges in this case. That evening, there was another shooting at a liquor store in Montgomery, Alabama. Montgomery, Alabama. Claudine Parker, store owner, was killed and Kelly Adams, a clerk, was injured. 
They're going all over the place, right? Shooting all kinds of people, trying to make it all look as random as possible and make, you know, some money for future missions. Kelly Adams spoke on Monster in My Family about that night. She said that she and Claudine closed at 7 p.m. They always checked the parking lot to make sure it was safe. Parking lot was empty, so they went outside. Claudine put the key in the lock. Kelly suddenly fell to the ground, turned to the left, and her face, quote, flopped open. Jesus Christ. Doctor said she would have died if the bullet had traveled just one sixteenth of an inch further. Kelly saw someone run off after she was shot. Uh, he dropped a catalog on the ground. It was actually a brochure. Lee Malvo had dropped it after imprinting it with his fingerprints, a mistake that would soon lead to his and John's arrest. Thank God. Uh, ballistics will link a 22 caliber handgun to the Atlanta and Montgomery, Alabama shootings. On September 23rd, 2002, Hong M. Ballinger, a beauty shop manager in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, killed in yet another shooting. Uh, during the week of September 23rd, John tells Lee what their true mission is. This deluded, selfish, diabolical fuck tells him they're going to extort $10 million from the government by randomly killing people. And they will then, obviously, use that money to buy a compound. Start a utopian community of 70 black boys and 70 black girls. Exactly. Phase six or something. Uh, These kids would grow up learning Islam and a code of honor. And they would go out into the world and change it. I mean, he really was more like a cult leader than a serial killer. That's how you make the world a better place. You gun down random citizens. Then have the government pay you to stop doing that. Then raise a bunch of people to live super honorable lives. And then those people turn the world into heaven on earth. Easy peasy. What don't you understand about this? Uh, most people familiar with this case seem to believe this was just, you know, it's another lie that John told. Even uh, uh, Lee didn't believe this was the real motive, even at the time. Um, yet he keeps helping him. In for a penny, in for a pound, I guess. On September 26, 2002, their next victim, Wright Williams Jr., shot and injured at his grocery store in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. John and Lee never charged in a shooting, but it was brought up at John's trial. He's probably, he's probably down there visiting family. You know, he's getting a couple shootings in while he visits some relatives. Uh, October 2nd, 2002 marks the true beginning of Lee and Papa John's D.C. area. Three-week-long rampage. Prior to this week, I either didn't remember or never knew that there was so much violence that had taken place before they t- terrorized the Beltway. And, and the Beltway, by the way, refers to Interstate 495, a.k.a. the Capitol Beltway. Uh, circ- circumferential highway or beltway that encircles Washington, D.C. and has since 1964. Uh, 5.20 p.m. on the second, shots fired inside a Michael's craft store in Aspen Hill, Maryland. No one's injured. A lot of people freak the fuck out. Then 40 minutes later, 6 p.m., sniper bullet kills 55-year-old James D. Martin. James is just walking across a shop instead of parking lot in Wheaton, Maryland. James was a program analyst at the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. Uh, Mildred hears the news. Now she's terrified of John and the sniper, not knowing the two are connected. And then that fear amped up when her coworker, who was picking her up for uh, work, informs her that a dark car had been sitting outside the cul-de-sac in her neighborhood. When this coworker drove past, they saw two black men sit in the car. Driver looked at them. Passenger hit his face with a newspaper. Mildred called the police, described the car as either a caprice, ding, 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 sure shot auto sales, or an Impala. Uh, the police sent an officer. The car was gone by the time they arrived. October 3rd, 2002, five more people are dead, four of them within a few miles of each other, and a fifth victim in Washington, D.C. Authorities linked the attacks to the sniper from the second and multiple agencies. Uh, They dedicated their agencies to finding the killer. Uh, The entire area now, covered by a a cloud of terror. 7.41 a.m., 39-year-old James L. Buchanan shot and killed while cutting grass at the Fitzgerald Auto Mall in White Flint, Maryland. 8.12 a.m., 54-year-old Prem Kumar, Wallachar killed while pumping gas for his cab at a mobile station in Aspen Hill, Maryland. 8.37 a.m., 34-year-old Sarah Ramos fatally shot in the head 
while just fucking reading a book on a bench in Silver Spring, Maryland. 9.58 a.m., 25-year-old Lori Ann Lewis Rivera killed while vacuuming her car at a Shell station in Kensington, Maryland. 9.20 p.m., 72-year-old Pascal Charlotte, retired carpenter, killed while walking along Georgia Avenue Northwest in Washington, D.C. Five murders in one day, four of them during less than a two-hour stretch in the morning. October 4th, 2002, 43-year-old Carolyn Sewell, shot, wounded, uh, might be Caroline, uh, Caroline, I think, Caroline Sewell, shot and wounded while loading items into her van at Michael's, uh, Michael's store near Spotsylvania Mall. Witness Alex Jones, but not that Alex Jones, not the conspiracy freak, saw Caroline uh, fall to the ground. He fled to his car. As he was driving through the parking lot, he ended up getting behind an old Chevy with New Jersey license plates, a Caprice, windows were covered. Uh, Jones felt a strong urge to get away from that car. I wish conspiracy uh, theorist Alex Jones would have been the witness there, right? Just so maybe we could find some YouTube video. I was there. I saw exactly who pulled the trigger. It was Hillary Clinton. She was sitting on George Soros' shoulders. George W. holding them steady. I can smell the sulfur. New world order demons. Illuminati snipers. The shootings aren't random. They're hits put out by Bill Gates to keep people quiet about the adrenochrome harvesting. Enough is enough. I see you, Tom Hanks. Judgment Day is coming. Just bugging his crazy ass. Uh, the police now called in a geographic profiler to establish a pattern to the shootings. October 7, 2002, 13-year-old Iran Brown shot critically wounded in front of a Benjamin in front of Benjamin Tasker Middle School in Bowie, Maryland. Man, Iran testified in 2003, when I got to the school, I opened the door to the car. I got out. I put my book bag down. I got shot. Dr. Martin Eichelberger, who performed surgery on Brown, said that his liver was shattered. Brown had injuries to his lung, spleen, pancreas, and diaphragm. Brown's aunt rushed him to a clinic after the shooting. She was a, a nurse, staff at the clinic and the hospital, barely able to save him. Didn't think they were going to be able to at first. Uh, President Bush now publicly condemns these cowardly and senseless acts of violence. Papa John sees President Bush's speech, turns himself and Lee Malvo in. It really woke him up. You know, up until hearing that speech, he thought the killings were courageous and logical. But then when Bush denounced them as cowardly and senseless, spoke to him, caused him to pause. He was like, oh, Oh, shit. Oh, God, Lee. What have we done? This is, this is cowardly. This, this is senseless. I see it now. This is fucking crazy. Come on, fake son. Let's head down to the precinct. See what we can do uh, to right some wrongs. At least receive some justice. You know, better ingredients, better rests. Uh, of course, it didn't happen. Um, I, and I also, I know that it's good to publicly denounce acts like this. I, I do the same thing. I do the same thing. It also is kind of silly though sometimes when you think about it. Like, you know, socially expected virtue signaling that probably does little to nothing to stop these kinds of acts from uh, ever happening. Uh, October 8th, 2002, death tarot card found near the school with a message, call me God, written on it. Stored as possible evidence. It was left by the shooters. Also on the 8th, Baltimore police pulled over a vehicle driving erratically. The driver and passenger, John Muhammad, Papa John, and Lee Malvo. Background check, though, doesn't reveal any outstanding warrants, so the uh, officer lets him go. Holy shit, they must have been sweating at that traffic stop. October 9, 2002, 53-year-old Dean Myers fatally shot while pumping gas in a Sunoco station near Manassas, Virginia. Then just two days later, October 11, 2002, 53-year-old Kenneth Bridges fatally shot while pumping gas. Man, pumping gas got real dangerous. Exxon Station, Fredericksburg, Virginia. Kenneth shot across the street from, uh, Kenneth was shot across the street from a Virginia state trooper investigating an accident. And that'll, uh, uh, you know, help out as far as like a possible witness authority shut down the entrance ramps to I-95 route one in an effort to stop the killer, but they can find no one. 
Witness Kristen, Christine Ann Goodwin sees an old Chevy Caprice with peeling paint and a New Jersey license plate parked at an Exxon in Fredericksburg about two hours before Kenneth Bridges is killed, right? The same gas station. When she sees the car, a lot of flags went off, she said later. Everything about it was wrong. Something inside me just felt that car was threatening. My first instinct was to call the police, but I didn't. Later that day, she did call the police once she heard about the shooting, though. October 12, 2002, the police released drawings of a white box truck with unknown lettering on the side reported by eyewitnesses at the shootings. Authorities announced they're going to release a drawing of a white Chevy Astro van seen at the October 11th shooting, obviously looking at the wrong type of vehicle. October 14, 2002, 47-year-old FBI intelligence analyst Linda Franklin killed by a single sniper's bullet. Loading supplies into her car outside a Home Depot in Falls Church, Virginia with her husband. Another random murder inside the Beltway. Man, her and her husband just loading things there. Can you fucking imagine? Sniper's bullet comes out of nowhere in a Home Depot parking lot, kills your spouse right in front of you. Jesus Christ. Uh, Linda worked for the FBI for three and a half years as an intelligence operations specialist with the cyber division in Quantico. She was out buying supplies for their new townhouse in Arlington, right? Just stopped at Home Depot after work. A customer at Home Depot told the police they saw a Middle Eastern man shooter. Said he was driving a white van with a bus of taillight. Good job, fucking witness. Way to infuse some 9-11 xenophobia, some paranoia into your allegation. Right? Uh, Seeing what you want to see. Excellent work. I wonder if that witness was Dana Crappa, world's worst eyewitness from the dating game killer suck. Uh, Police stopped all white vans in the area, but couldn't find the shooter, you know, because they weren't weren't driving a white van. That uh, that van description really kind of slowed the investigation down a bit. October 15th, 2002, the Department of Defense approves the use of spy planes to find the sniper. Police released sketches of two possible vans. Damn it, with the vans. Thought it'd be related to the attacks. October 17th, an individual claiming to be the D.C. sniper calls the FBI tip line. Admits to murdering two women during a liquor store robbery in Montgomery, Alabama, September 2002. This actually was one of the snipers, thought to be Lee. Why would they do this? Maybe guilty conscience. Uh, Good thing this lead was followed up on and almost got lost in a sea of bullshit. As I said earlier in the episode, after detectives opened up a tip line, less than three weeks, over 100,000 calls came in from people who were sure they knew who the sniper was. And all but like three calls were shit. So many calls came in that an actual helpful call from an old army buddy of John Muhammad's saying he thought John was a sniper was ignored. Over 100,000 tips, all but two useless. That's fucking crazy. That takes so much manpower to filter through. You can only imagine some of the calls they got, right? <laughs> Just some, uh, uh, yeah, 911 uh, tip line. What's your, what's your emergency? Or whatever the fucking how they answered. Uh, tip line. What's your, do you have a tip for us? Uh, yeah, I got your guy. It's, uh, it's my Uncle Bernie. He hasn't seemed right lately. <laughs> Not since Linda left him again. Well, and this time, because he reconnected with uh, my Aunt Sue. Why would he do that? That's anyone's guess. We were so shocked, you know. A lot of words got thrown around about what a piece of crap Bernie was. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. You'd be blushing if you heard a lot of that. My, In my personal opinion, he left Linda because their cooking was bullcrap. I mean, who messes up a tuna casserole? <laughs> you said it and forget it. I mean, right? Uh, anyway, uh, hello. Uh, hey, hello. Why was I hung up on? Uh, full disclosure, I actually was one of the people who called in. I called in to report my dad. I didn't have proof it was him, but I also didn't know where he was in October 2002. And he's very handy with firearms and he's a great long range rifle shot. If only dad watch had been around back then, we could have nabbed Papa John and probably my dad. Papa Dan, JK. Uh, based on John's call, investigators learned that a crime did take place in Montgomery and the Montgomery police had a fingerprint and ballistic evidence. An FBI agent in Mobile collected the evidence, took it to Washington, D.C., a priest in Ashland, Virginia, also received a call from someone claiming to be the sniper on October 18th. Said he knew who killed a woman uh, who was shot on October 14th. And the caller mentioned the Alabama shooting. Uh, it's thought that this was probably, again, Lee. 
Caller also told the priest to write down the message, Dear Mr. Policeman, call me God. Right, just like on the tarot card. Do not release to the press. Priest will call the police after hearing about another shooting on October 19th. October 19th, 2002, 37-year-old Jeffrey Hopper shot outside a Ponderoso Steakhouse in Ashland, Virginia. And investigators find a letter stuck to a tree at the crime scene. Snipers were now demanding $10 million to stop further violence. All part of Papa John's master plan. Gotta open up that weird orphanage, part of phase six or maybe 10, I forget. FBI released this letter. For you, Mr. Police, call me God. Do not release to the press. We have tried to contact you to start negotiation, but the incompetence of your forces in Montgomery Police, Rockville Police Department, Task Force FBI, Priest at Ashley. These people took of calls for a hoax or joke. So your failure to respond has cost you five lives. If stopping the killing is more important than catching us now, then you will accept our demand, which are non-negotiable. I feel like Papa John should have spent uh, less time earlier uh, on, you know, fucking karate and push-ups and stuff. And maybe more time studying spelling and grammar. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, Continues. You will place $10 million in Bank of America account number, you know, redacted uh, account information then listed. We have unlimited withdrawal at any ATM worldwide. You will activate the bank account, credit card, and PIN number. We will contact you at Ponderosa Buffet, 6 a.m. Sunday morning. You have until 9 a.m. Monday morning to complete transaction. Try to catch us withdrawing. At least you will have less body bags. But if trying to catch us more important than prepare you body bags. If we give you our word, that is what takes place. Word is bond. P.S. Your children are not safe anywhere at any time. Sure shot auto sales. Well, that was a weird commercial they had for them. Uh, I really wish Papa John would have, uh, again, used less of his homeless time in Bellingham to watch the Matrix, more of it on how to write understandable sentences and paragraphs. Chief Charles Moose now enters the equation. Captain Chuck motherfucking Moose Knuckle uh, appeals to the sniper in response to the letter saying, we do want to talk to you. Call the number you provided. Call us at the number you provided. Sorry. On October 20th, 2002, D.C. area investigators contact Montgomery, Alabama Police Chief John Wilson about the September 21st shooting in that city. On October 21st, uh, the FBI agent from Mobile arrives in Washington, D.C. ATF analyzes the ballistic evidence. The FBI takes a fingerprint from the pamphlet Lee dropped to their lab. Later that day, police receive a call from the snipers, trace it to a payphone at an Exxon in Glen Allen, Virginia. Two undocumented immigrants are arrested uh, near that payphone, but not the snipers. Uh, October 22nd, uh, again, 20, 35-year-old Conrad Johnson, bus driver, killed while standing on the two-step of his bus, on the top step of his bus, excuse me, Aspen Hill, Maryland. The police reported that another letter left near the crime scene. Later that day, the FBI fingerprint database matches the Alabama print to leave to Lee Boyd Malvo, previously arrested in Washington State by immigration officials. The arrest record from Washington mentions a man named John Allen Muhammad. A Tacoma agent recognizes that name from a tip called into their office. So nice fucking work. Law enforcement, remember, uh, you know, over 100,000 tips are flooding in. They got a lot of information to decipher from. They're trying to do it quick. An Alabama police officer then identifies John Muhammad in a photo lineup because two officers had parked near the liquor store and heard gunshots. One of them had chased John, actually gotten within a couple feet of him, and then ATF learns that John Muhammad owned a Bushmaster, right? A 223 rifle, a federal violation because he was serving a, served a restraining order by his ex-wife. FBI able to charge Muhammad with a federal weapons violation because Lee Malvo was believed to be with him. The FBI gets a material witness warrant for him, for his arrest. Uh, search in the criminal records database then reveals that John Muhammad had registered a blue 1990 Chevy Caprice in New Jersey that he'd bought at Church Shot Auto Sales. Uh, the FBI released the vehicle description complete with license plate info to national media outlets. So they're getting, they're getting close. 
Same day, they discover Lee's name. A man named Robert Holmes calls the FBI, says he's worried that the sniper is a friend of his from the army, John Muhammad. John introduced him to a young man who he nicknamed Sniper several weeks earlier. Mm-hmm. FBI sent a picture of Lee Malvo to Holmes, asked if that was a sniper, and he was like, yep, that's the guy. October 23rd, 2002, image of John Muhammad is faxed to the Sniper Task Force. Investigators issue a BOLO, be on the lookout for. Uh, they issue one for John Muhammad, Lee Malvo, and for the Chevy Caprice. Authorities also search a place uh, John had crashed at a bit for uh, in uh, crashed for a bit in, in Tacoma, and they found out that neighbors had complained that John and Lee were often doing target practice in the backyard, and they removed several items from the property, including the tree stump that they had shot into. Montgomery Police uh, Chief, now Captain Moose Knuckle, holds another press conference. Says we have caught the sniper like a duck in a noose, and this was per a sniper's request. Uh, the sniper's request in another letter for him to do so. But then a few hours later, they really do catch him. 11.45 p.m., a trucker and a driver spot the Chevy Caprice at a rest stop uh, parking lot off I-70 in Myersville, Maryland. Law enforcement quickly arrive at the scene. They quietly block off the exit, amass a considerable show of force. A few hours later, October 24, 2002, 3.19 a.m., team of Maryland State Police, Montgomery County SWAT officers, special agents from the FBI's hostage rescue team arrest the snipers while they sleep in the car. It's fucking over. Investigators see that the car has a hole cut in the trunk right above the license plate, which allows a sniper to shoot from inside the vehicle. Investigators see that they had removed the sheet metal between the back seat and trunk so they could easily go back and forth. And they call it a rolling sniper's nest. Inside the rolling sniper's nest, they find the Bushmaster 223, a scope, owner's manual with written impressions from one of the sniper's demand notes, voice recorder used by Malvo and Muhammad to make extortion demands, a stolen laptop containing maps of shooting sites, getaway routes, various maps, walkie-talkies, other items. I mean, all the evidence they needed. John Muhammad arraigned on a preliminary federal weapons charge. Lee held as a material witness and as a juvenile in Baltimore. When Mildred learns that her husband is the DC sniper, she literally faints, literally passes the fuck out. Uh, the next day, or, or shortly after this, October 25th, uh, Montgomery, Maryland prosecutors announced that the two shooters would face six first degree murder charges and that they would seek the death penalty for John Muhammad. Now the second phase of work begins, understanding why the snipers killed. Lee Malville agrees to hours of interviews with law enforcement, psychologists, social workers. Even though this kid had become a cold-blooded killer, I do feel sorry for him. I mean, man, he just really wanted to do what people said so they would be happy with him, be proud of him, let them be part of his, you know, their family. You know, even if, uh, you know, he had to fucking kill for them. They wanted to understand how exactly a boy from Jamaica became connected with a divorced man from Washington who already had kids. They learned that John had stepped in as a father figure of sorts for Lee. And then that relationship, you know, evolved into something much different, something super toxic, crazy, and controlling. Based on how the two men interacted when arrested, officers initially assumed John and Lee were father and son. Lee appeared extremely distressed when separated from John. Lee was interviewed at the Montgomery County Offsite Family Services Facility in Rockville, Maryland. Shortly after Lee was placed in the interview room, he tried to escape, had to be forcibly restrained by officers. Lee refused to speak, would only make gestures and trace words on, a, on the table and the wall. When told he would need to speak, uh, he made a zipper motion over his mouth and refused to sign papers. He traced the words, I understand my rights. The police want to know about my thoughts. The police are trying to get what I am thinking. All right. When he, did, when he did this, he made a noose and a hanging gesture. When asked if he wanted to hurt himself, he shrugged. He was, about, uh, he was asked about the $10 million demand. When the interviewer suggested the shootings were not motivated by money, Lee tapped his head, made a turning a key gesture on his forehead. He was told that there was a lot of evidence left behind at the Conrad Johnson crime scene. The interviewer suggested that, you know, maybe things were left behind on purpose. Lee nodded that they were. He wanted to get caught. He wanted it to be over, but he was just afraid to stand up to Papa John. 
At this point, Lee becomes willing to talk. He takes responsibility for all the shootings and uh, not sure why he added this, but said he would do it again if he had the chance. October 29th, Virginia prosecutors filed capital murder charges against both John and Lee. October 31st, ballistics linked the Bushmaster 223 to Hong M. Ballinger shooting. John and Lee charged with capital murder, but never tried for this particular killing. January 15, 2003, Fairfax County Juvenile Court Judge Charles Mayfield rules that Lee Malvo will be tried as an adult for the murder of Linda Franklin. Carmetta Alvarez, social worker of sorts, we met earlier, later the author of Making uh, the Making of Lee Boyd Malvo, gets involved in the case in February of 2003. Uh, John Strayer, one of Lee's attorneys, had requested her. He asked if she would assist. She had been recommended by a death penalty attorney in Virginia. They thought that since she was also born in Jamaica, she could bring some cultural sensitivity to the team. She'd be appointed as an investigator because Virginia did not uh, recognize the function of a mitigation specialist at that time. Carmetta specialized in forensic social work. She assisted defense attorneys in conducting social history investigations and assessments of criminal defendants. Her job was to understand how the defendant's life was shaped by their criminal actions or how, how their life shaped their criminal actions. Carmetta was told that she needed to investigate Lee's life in Jamaica and Antigua. And they told her this was going to prove challenging because he refused uh, to talk to most people. But she was able to work hard, establish a sense of trust, uh, you know, through shared culture and ethnicity and was able to get him to talk to her. September 17, 2003, Judge Jane Merrim Rausch rules the death penalty will be possible for Lee if convicted. November 10th, arraignment and jury selection begin for Lee's trial for the murder of Linda Franklin. November 17th, John Muhammad found guilty of conspiracy to commit murder. Right? They're moving this, this along quick. Excuse me. Illegal use of a firearm, murder with intent to terrorize the government or public, and account of capital murder for the death of Dean Myers. John's attorneys argued that Lee was the only shooter, but the jury didn't agree. November 24th, 2003, a jury recommends that John Muhammad be sentenced to death for the murder of Dean Harold Myers. December 18th, Lee Malvo found guilty of capital murder, terrorism, and use of a firearm in Linda Franklin's death. March 9th, 2004, John Muhammad officially sentenced to death in Manassas, Virginia. The jury finds that he will be a continuing serious threat to society if allowed to live. John reads a statement to the judge saying, I had nothing to do with this. I just want better ingredients, better pizza. No, he said, uh, you do what you have to do and let me do what I have to do to defend myself. That's what he says. I have nothing to do with this. You do what you have to do and let me do what I have to do to defend myself. What the fuck does that even mean? Listen, I understand you got a job. You need to do what you need to do. And what you need to do is to convict me and sentence me to death. I get it. But you also have to let me do what I need to do for myself. And what I need to do is defend myself and not be killed. And the judge is like, what? No, I don't, I don't need to do any of that. You just, you'll be defending nothing. Judge, judge, hear me on this. You sentence me to death. That's what you do. But let me do what I do. And what I do, I'm going to use my karate to defend myself. Phase five. If the executioner comes at me, he's getting fucking chopped. Phase six. He's getting crane kicked, kick flipped. Phase seven, eight. Judge's like, no, you're going to be shackled. And I don't even think you're using karate terms. I'm pretty sure that last term was a, for a skateboard trick. Uh, John's attorneys filed a six-page document pleading for his life, saying Muhammad was born an innocent infant, then became a child and a man who was buffeted by crushing poverty, neglect, and abuse by war, and ultimately by the loss of his children in his marriage. His attorneys argued that his veteran status, lack of prior criminal record, should be considered as mitigating factors. They won't be. March 10, 2004, Lee Malvo sentenced to life in prison without parole for the murder of Linda Franklin. October 26, 2004, Lee Malvo takes a plea bargain for the murders of Kenneth Bridges and Caroline Sewell sentenced to life in prison without parole again. Uh, Washington State chooses not to prosecute Lee for the murder of Kenya Cook because of lack of aggravating factors that would increase the sentencing beyond the sentencing he's already received. March 1st, 2005, U.S. Supreme Court abolishes, abolishes death penalty for minors. 
May 23rd, 2006, as part of his Montgomery County plea deal, Lee Malvo testifies against John Muhammad during a, another one of his trials. John Muhammad convicted of six counts of murder in Maryland. Lee testifies against him, claiming that John killed the first, C vict- killed the first six victims. Uh, we'll never know for sure who pulled the trigger in some of these murders uh, because the blame game, you know, each guy played. They kept accusing each other. There were no other witnesses to give one accusation more weight than the other in many cases, and both their fingerprints were all over the murder weapons. October 10th, 2006, Lee Malvo confesses to six shootings in Montgomery County, Maryland, pleads guilty. Tucson, Arizona gives Lee immunity from prosecution after he confesses to the murder of Jerry Taylor in March 2002, since he'd already been found guilty of so many other fucking murders. November 8th, 2006, Lee is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole in Montgomery County. November 10th, 2009, 49-year-old John Muhammad is executed in Girat, Virginia. They didn't waste a lot of time with him. A lot of murderers sit on death row for over a decade, but this guy, they're like, "Ah, let's fucking get him dead as fast as we can. I don't blame him. Governor Tim Kaine denied a last-minute request for clemency. Supreme Court declined to intervene. John spent his final day with his Maryland attorney, J. Wendell Gordon. Gordon said he had a strong attitude. John maintained his innocence, did not show remorse, did extend his condolences to the victim's families. I'm sure they really appreciated that. I'm sure that meant a lot. For his final meal, he had a Papa John's Epic Pepperoni stuffed crust uh, with extra cheese for the unbelievable price of just $10. Better ingredients, better pizza, Papa John's. No, uh, he had a chicken with red sauce and cake. He spent the afternoon with some family as well. He'd written uh, previously to his first wife, Carol, asked her to attend, saying, Carol, I miss uh, my family. For the past eight years, I don't want to be missed the day that these devils murdered my innocent black ass. Fucking innocent. Uh, She didn't make it. She was busy. She had something really important to do, like uh, get her teeth cleaned or maybe take a nap. Papa John's first child, Lindbergh Williams, who was pro-death penalty before his dad's conviction and sentencing to death, told CNN that he didn't change his mind about the death penalty. Now, not even when his father was executed. Uh, he'll say this later. He says, if you commit a crime, you can pay the time. He did say that he thought John regretted what he did at the end. Papa John's second wife, Mildred, also wasn't able to attend. She probably was, uh, she's busy. She, uh, there was like a new episode of Two and a Half Men or something. Uh, she told CNN that she hadn't seen John since the 2001 custody hearing saying, I had emotionally detached from John when I asked him for a divorce. And my emotions were severed when he said that you have become my enemy and as my enemy, I will kill you. I mean, that's fair. Uh, She said that she believed that she was the true target of the sniper attacks and blamed John's service in the Gulf War for changing him, saying he went from someone who was always happy, knew what direction he was going in, was focused to a person that was totally confused, depressed all the time, didn't know how to to do or get to where he wanted to be. Damn. Uh, You know, I'm sure what he experienced there, I mean, yeah, did not help at all, but to, to blame it, I don't know. I just know we have a lot of veterans who listen to the show and based on how many emails we get, many of them have experienced uh, combat and experienced uh, serious PTSD. As far as I know, none of them have recruited a lonely and lost teenager and trained them to be an assassin and then gone in the cross-country fucking sniper spree. If serving alone could do that to you, it seems like there would be way more murders. Guessing Papa John already had a lot wrong with him before he served overseas and that a lot of terrible choices he made after he returned home led him to doing what he ended up doing. Not saying what he went through wasn't incredibly traumatic or tragic and didn't play a part, you know, that it didn't really torment and change you, but probably can't be used uh, as a scapegoat the way she kind of phrased it there. Uh, John was silent from the time he entered the death chamber until his death. He had no response when asked if he wished to make a last statement. John entered the death chamber at 8.58 p.m. And at 8.59, he fucking karate chopped his Papa John ass right out of that room. He went full Wesley Snipes slash Steven Seagal, blasted a few motherfuckers with fist of fury, maybe some Hadoukens, he kick-flipped a gun out of an officer's hand, used uh, you know that to uh, hostage situation his, uh, his way out of the prison, thought to have snuck his ass out of the country, made it back to the Caribbean, where he is now running that orphanage. Faith in, motherfuckers, is complete. No, no, he was quickly strapped to the gurney. 
Uh, showed no emotion as it happened. Asked for his last words. Again, didn't give any at 9.06. 9.07, he began twitching, blinking. 9.08 p.m., he's still. And then he died via lethal injection at 9.11. Eerie timing. John's defense attorney, John Sheldon, read a statement. We deeply, we deeply sympathize with the families and loved ones who have to relive the pain and loss of those terrible days. Our sympathies also extend to the children of John Muhammad, who with uh, humility and self-consciousness, today lost a father and a member of their family. To all those families and the countless citizens across the country who bore witness and continue to do so to those tragic events, we renew our condolences and we offer our prayers for a better future. And also uh, this weekend from Friday to uh, 8 a.m. through Sunday night at uh, midnight, uh, Papa John's Better Ingredients, Better Pizza, $10 for Canadian bacon and pineapple Hawaiian special, $5 for the second one. I know. Uh, Paul Ebert, the prosecutor who got John's death. I'll stop trying to do that. Yeah, shut the fuck up about Papa John's. Paul Ebert, the prosecutor who got John's death penalty conviction, said, he died very peacefully, much more than most of his victims. I felt a sense of closure, and I hope that they did too. John promised his kids he'd call on his execution day. Uh, they spent the whole day waiting by the phone, and none of them received a call. So that's that's cool. That's a nice final act. Papa John, incredible father, right up until the bitter end. Uh, July 25th, 2012 now, Supreme Court rules that sentencing a juvenile to life without parole violates the Eighth Amendment which prohibits the federal government from imposing excessive bail, excessive fines, or more famously, cruel and unusual punishments. And in June of 2013, Maryland and Virginia federal courts received a petition from Lee Malvo's attorneys requesting to vacate his life sentences. In June of 2014, Lee's petition rejected by a Virginia federal judge. Lee immediately files an appeal. January 26, 2016, Supreme Court makes a decision in Montgomery versus Louisiana, determines that the 2012 Miller versus Alabama decision could be applied retroactively. Miller versus Alabama ruled that life sentences for defendants aged 17 or younger should be barred for all but the rarest of juvenile offenders, those whose crimes reflect permanent incorrigibility. May 26, 2017, Lee's cases sent to Chesapeake and Spotsylvania County for resentencing after a federal judge overturns his two life sentences in Virginia. Lee had argued that his sentences did not align with the current Supreme Court decision. Judge Raymond Jackson found that Lee unknowingly gave up his Eighth Amendment rights saying there's no evidence in the record to suggest that petitioner was aware of the existence of this right, much less that he intended to relinquish or abandon it when he agreed to a sentence of life in prison without parole. Paul LaRuffa testified in Virginia in support of Lee's resentencing to life with the possibility of parole. That's fucking crazy. This is that 55-year-old dude who Lee shot five times from close range with a 22 caliber handgun outside of Margelina, his restaurant in Clinton, Maryland, September 5th, 2002. Paul told uh, Northern Virginia Magazine later, One of the definitions of forgiveness is that you get rid of anger and resentment toward the person who's done something to you. Because if you don't, then you're miserable. People don't take that into consideration. They think you should feel the same way, have the same anger. I think there's good reasons why youth should be considered. They're doomed to life in prison. There is no hope. And I guess I'm in favor of a system that would be a little more fair. He and Lee obviously had spoken before he made that statement and he'd become familiar with Lee's story and Lee clearly made quite the uh, good impression on him. June 21st, 2018, Based on Miller versus Alabama, a federal appeals court agrees that the four life sentences Lee received in Virginia uh, must be vacated. March 18, 2019, the Supreme Court agrees to hear Lee's case challenging uh, you know, more life sentences. October 16, 2019, the Supreme Court hears arguments in Lee's case. February 24, tw- tw- ah, 2020, uh, the government of Virginia signs a bill making juvenile offenders sentenced to life in prison eligible for parole after 20 years. Because of that new law, Lee Malvo agrees to drop his request for resentencing with the Supreme Court. February 26, 2020, Lee Malvo sentences a Virginia commuted to life with the possibility of parole. March 10th, 2020, Lee Malvo married in a prison ceremony to an unidentified woman 
Carmen Alvarez told the Washington Post she's an absolutely wonderful individual who had begun visiting Lee in 2018. Craig S. Cooley, one of Lee's original attorneys, called her a very impressive young lady, educated. Her eyes are wide open. I believe they are soulmates. She sees the good and sees Lee as I've always seen him. How I think the world would have seen him had Muhammad not taken over his life. Lee Malvo, currently 37 years old, incarcerated at Red Onion Prison, a supermax near the North Carolina border. According to some recent sources, he'll be eligible for parole in Virginia later this year. But he's also convicted of murder in Maryland. In April 2021, Maryland banned life sentences for juveniles, though, and Malvo sued for relief, and the Maryland Court of Appeals agreed to review his case. Oral arguments began in in February this year. Decision expected any day now this can be applied retroactively, so there is still a chance he could live out a good portion of his life as a free man. And that'll take us out of this time-suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. What a fucking twisted tale. Uh, Before I share some final thoughts, uh, time for another just kind of real quick sponsor break. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by the LS Don't Whistling Rehabilitation Institute. Have you recently forgotten how to whistle? Too much drugs? Not listening to the right sing-alongs? Maybe life has just gotten in the way. Perhaps you're stuck in an impressive employment environment that doesn't allow you to whistle while you work. Well, be confused and sad no longer. Get ready to wet that whistle once more. Soon you'll be back to putting a little Andy Griffith back in your day. You'll be yacht rocking that whistle across the water. And you'll be back in the whistling saddle getting good, bad, and ugly again. on the acid space cowboys less taps more whistle uh, just a little fun little nod to last week me sex hope that whistle didn't fucking blow your ears out uh hell nimrod uh let's wrap up this week now the dc snipers were uh 41 year old john allen muhammad 17 year old lee boyd malvo this unlikely pair responsible for 10 deaths three injuries and three weeks of terror in the dc area with seven killed, seven others injured elsewhere in the weeks leading up to the final attacks. As authorities and attorneys began to unravel their relationship, they were shocked and disturbed by John Muhammad's influence over Lee, a boy he wasn't related to. John and Lee had just met two years before his arrests. In those two years, John established total control and domination over Lee. Lee was so desperate for love that he was willing to do anything for John. John had fully accepted, or Lee had fully accepted John as his father. John and Lee went on a cross-country rampage of robberies and shootings, all with the goal of killing Papa John's ex, Mildred, getting away with it because her murder would then just seem just, you know, one of many random killings. And then getting John's kids back, also maybe getting $10 million to open up some strange, weird fucking orphanage of 140 kids or something. John and Lee robbed and murdered business owners, employees for money to fund their journey to D.C. Ultimately, John did not succeed in his plan, just brought a lot of needless death and terror to residents of the D.C. area and to a lot of places along the way. So fuck Papa John, glad the state killed him, And I'm also glad that Lee has not been executed. Of all the killers we have covered, Lee Boyd Malvo is the one I think I feel the most sorry for. I mean, dude killed a lot of people in cold blood. But the way he was manipulated into all of this, I mean, God damn. He wasn't out raping and torturing to fulfill dark sexual desires. He was in just about the most fucked up way possible, of course, helping his father figure get his family back. 
Dude had been abandoned so many times as a kid, left with random relatives or with no relatives while mom left the country for work or just didn't have uh, uh, the space to take care of him with a dad nearby who didn't seem interested in him at all. He'd form attachments, then be ripped away from those over and over again. By the time he was 15, he'd been to a dozen different schools in several countries, lived with so much poverty, desperately just wanted some stability. Wanted a dad to love him. Seemed like a truly good kid growing up. And then he happened to run into a fucking psycho who fulfilled this fatherly you know, role for him, met him when he was just 15 years old. Dude started hardcore brainwashing him shortly thereafter before he turned 16. He became John's sole focus up in Bellingham when he was 16, so much more brainwashing, so much. And then he went on this killing spree. And now he's been in prison for over half his life for what he did. He's the first mass murderer we have looked into who I would understand releasing from prison at some point. He's, a, he's apologized to so many victims, gotten them to testify for him, seems earnest, you know, I know apologizing doesn't bring anybody back from the dead, but I also don't think he he would did, you know, he that he would have done what he did if he removed John Mah- Allen Muhammad from his past. I don't think he would uh, do any of this again. Outside of pleasing John, I, I, I doubt he enjoyed doing what he did. He uh, seemed to intentionally leave evidence to get caught. He just wanted to please his cult leader. Uh, however, I also don't have a problem if he does stay in prison for the rest of his life, because no matter what the circumstance, he did kill a bunch of innocent people. He did pull the trigger many times. He chose to. And, you know, nothing he can do now can bring anyone back. But just, you know, man, what a shitty hand he was dealt at birth. And what a terrible wild card he happened to be dealt when he met Papa John. So take care of your kids, Meat Sacks, right? Lee never becomes who he became if his actual father had stayed around. Maybe John wouldn't have uh, became who he became if his dad would have stayed around. You know, Lee wouldn't have become who he became if his fucking mom would have put his needs above her own. So uh, take care of your kids. And let's get to uh, today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, John Allen Muhammad was a normal family man for most of his life, or at least kind of normal. After being abandoned by his own father at a young age, all he wanted was to have a family of his own. He had, uh, you know, kids who he loved deeply. He was an active and caring father, a little too controlling, but active and caring. But when he came home from deployment in the Middle East, he was a different man. He became emotionally abusive, extremely controlling of his children. His obsession with control spiraled into something dangerous when he lost custody of his children. And John started to form the beginning of his plan for the DC sniper attacks. Number two, Lee Boyd Malvo was born in Kingston, Jamaica. Jamaica, man. Uh, he was a kind and respectful little boy. Unfortunately, he had an extremely unstable uh, home life. He was abandoned by his mom and father at critical periods in his life, abandoned over and over again, desperate for love and stability. When John Muhammad entered his life, he took on a fatherly role, offered Lee everything he wanted, Love, family, a home. Well, kind of. Homeless shelter sometimes. Uh, Lee was willing to submit to John's rigorous training routines to have all that. And then incredibly, also willing to become John's own personal hitman. Number three, John Muhammad Lee Malvo met purely by chance. Lee was in Antigua to live with his mom, Una James. John Muhammad kidnapped his kids after his wife got a restraining order against him and fled to Antigua. The two ran into one another at Zaza Electronics, a little electronic store on the island. They met again when Una purchased a fake visa from John. Uh, Lee quickly bonded with Papa John and John's children and their strange and unhealthy relationship developed from there. Number four, although we often think of the DC sniper attacks as 22 days of terror, John and Lee actually committed shootings across the country when they made their way to the DC area in search of Mildred, killing a, a total of 17 and injuring a total of 10. And number five, new info. There might even be uh, more darkness to John and Lee's sick relationship that we didn't already cover. In an exclusive TV interview with today's uh, Matt Lauer back in October of 2012, a decade after the murders, almost three years of John Muhammad's, or almost three years after John Muhammad's execution, Lee Boyd Malvo, Malvo, my God, I can't talk all of a sudden, uh, claimed that he was sexually abused by John. 
For the entire period when I was 15 until I got arrested, I was sexually abused by John Muhammad, Malvo said. I felt a sense of shame and I just said, that's something that I would never tell anyone. And to a certain extent, up until that point, I just really couldn't handle it. Malvo also told Lauer that there are uh, victims of the shooting spree that have yet to be identified. Melvo additionally told today producers that this would be his final interview about his crimes before speaking about the families of his victims. He said, I would share with them what I've used for myself. Please do not allow my actions and the actions of Muhammad to hold you hostage and continue to victimize you for the rest of your life. If you give those images and thoughts that power, it will continue to inflict that suffering over and over and over and over and over again. Do not give me or him that much power. Malvo detailed his claims of sexual abuse, including by a babysitter at the age of five and then later by relatives until he was 10, which he confided in Muhammad. He said, I just basically divulged everything. I saw him to be an excellent listener. So in doing so, without ambivalence, without holding anything back, I provided him with a blueprint. He knew exactly what motivated me, what I was looking for, what was lacking. Malvo didn't try and use any of this to excuse what he did either. Just to explain, he referred to himself also as a monster saying when someone cannot go beyond themselves and begin to consider how their actions affect others and are solely motivated by their own self-interest, we call them psychopaths. Malvo denied that he was speaking out, uh, speaking out in order, that he was not speaking out in order to garner sympathy or to try to get a reduced prison sentence. He said, I seriously doubt this is going to change anything as far as my life goes. I've come to grasp that what I have to look forward to is life in prison. And obviously this is before some recent court reversals. He said, I wouldn't wish this on anyone. It was intended to punish and it's effective. It is complete deprivation. I don't see outside. I have no contact with animals, plants, people. Bob Myers' brother, Dean Myers, killed by the snipers at a gas station in Virginia, spoke to NBC Chief Justice Correspondent Pete Williams and said, we recognize that he was tremendously under the control of John Muhammad, and he was. Probably a good word would be brainwashed. And since that time, he's gotten, as we understand, some mentoring, some help, and has had years to recognize what he did. Our understanding is that he, given the chance, would not have chosen to take the same course again, but he can't alter that. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The DC sniper attacks a cult of two has been sucked. Now for some thanks. Thanks to uh, Bad Magic Productions team here. Thanks to Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Thanks to Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley for production. Thanks to Bit Elixir for upkeep on the Time Suck app. Logan the Art Warlock Keith creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com. Running socials with Liz the Enchantress Hernandez. Thanks to Olivia Lee for the initial research this week. Uh, Thanks to the All-Seen Eyes, moderating the Cult of the Curious 2 private Facebook page. Thanks to Becky, Jesse, and the Mod Squad, and Reverend Dr. Joe, making sure Discord keeps running smooth. And a lot of fun over on Reddit. I uh, I like to check check that out from uh, time to time throughout the week. Uh, Next week, we cover the 1972 crash of Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571, a.k.a. Miracle Flight 571, a.k.a. the Andes Flight Disaster, a.k.a. the Miracle of the Andes. Is a plane supposed to be flying so close to the mountains? That was the last thing a passenger of that flight said before the plane crashed in the mountains. The plane was carrying 45 passengers, most of which were members of the Uruguayan rugby team, along with a few friends and family, one woman who bought a seat to attend her daughter's wedding. What was supposed to be a two-hour flight to Chile uh, Chile, uh, for a rugby match turned into an ordeal that would test the surviving passengers' physical and mental strength and their will to survive. For those who didn't die in the initial crash, they'd suffer for 72 days in the Valley of Tears. Only 16 of the 45 would come out alive. The passengers of Flight 571 faced brutally cold temperatures, injuries, sickness, sun blindness, thirst, and starvation so severe, they began to eat the bodies of their friends and family who lay in the snow next to them. Tragedy after tragedy struck the survivors until the small group set off on foot on day 60, determined to hike out of the Andes or die trying. What the surviving 16 went through is something very, very few people will ever experience in their lifetimes, thank Nimrod, and will explore the full story 
next week. Right now, let's head on over to a very fun uh, week of Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Starting off with a bang from Whipple addict Corey Morgan, who writes, Hey, Dan and crew, my buddy and I have been joking around making our own Whipple ads, such as Whip, Whipple Basic White Girl Edition and Whipple Soccer Mom Edition. <laughs> These got me inspired to write one for all the uh, dads out there in lieu of Father's Day being right around the corner. Feel free to change it up if you need be. My dad didn't even change it, but it would be awesome if you could get it in before Father's Day. If you like it, I can send you other ones. I'm getting it in right after. Uh, you will absolutely laugh your ass off, guaranteed. I did. Thanks for checking it out. Hope to hear from you. And here we go. It's 5 a.m. You're tired as fuck. You don't want to work on your yard or deal with the mundane bullshit of suburban life. You need the new Whipple Father's Day edition. Whipple's Father's Day edition will have you push those white New Balances to a gear they haven't seen in 20 years. You'll have so much energy you won't need to use to self-propel in your lawnmower. That's pussy shit. You'll be pushing your riding lawnmower. Whipple Father's Day edition will, <laughs> will get you the giant sack of man nuts you need to walk over and punch Dave right in the fucking face. Next time he says your lines aren't straight, then take that soccer mom wife of yours, soccer mom wife of yours, show her a side of you she hasn't seen since you started dating. And you'll still have time to play catch with those little crotch goblins you call your kids. You'll be barbecuing some baby back ribs while making other dads look like baby back bitches. Whipple's Father's Day edition will turn you into the jean short wearing monster you've always dreamt of being. Fuck you. Fuck your family. Drink Whipple. Father's Day edition. Now in Craftsman Lawnmower Cherry and DeWalt Lemonade flavors. Bravo, Corey. Bravo. Fucking love it. You keep sending those in. You whipple loving son of a bitch. I didn't change anything. That was all Corey Morgan. Uh, next up, fellow tripping sack. Sarah Wheeler has a uh, quick hitter for us. Made me laugh. Sarah writes, hello, I'm a relatively new listener. Started binging episodes during early 2020 during COVID, but I really love this show. Thank you. I have a bizarre sense of humor and time suck really fits that niche. Anyway, I had a few random thoughts about two recent episodes. One, Bogwan. Sounds exactly like Ka from the original Disney Jungle Book. The scene where he's hypnotizing uh, Mowgli could quite literally be Bogwan speaking. I didn't think of that, but totally agree. Two, uh, I really enjoyed your description of the acid trip. I did it for the first time about three weeks ago. And when I came home from the concert I was at, I had to walk up the five flights of stairs to my apartment. I was actually trapped in an MC Escher painting <laughs> for who knows how long. I'm just so glad my neighbors went awake to witness me stuck in a stairwell for whatever amount of time it was. Love the show. Thanks for the weekly knowledge and laughs, Sarah. Sarah, yes. Yes, again, Bhagwan does sound like Ka. Nailed that. Also, I died when I first read your MC Escher painting uh, visual there. Yeah, that makes so much sense. It truly feels sometimes like you're going to be trapped forever in certain moments. Like sometimes I, like, uh, I can get that same distance distortion from a lot of shrooms as well. It's so surreal. And I know exactly what you're talking about. It just feels like the fucking stairs, like you're just going to be lost in an infinite stair loop. You probably actually walked up those stairs relatively normally. You just felt like you were trapped there for an endless amount of time due to the way that LSD distorts your brain's ability to process time correctly. Such a weird drug. Uh, now a sweet message from a sweet sack. Joey Crab, who writes, Dear Master Sucker, Bojangles Chew Toy, lover of Lucifina, ward of Triple M. I've been catching up on past episodes in a very convoluted way. I go back about 10 episodes, listen to them, and repeat. I just got to the Pennhurst State Hospital suck, and that one hits close to home. My son is autistic and on the severe end of the spectrum. Not a lot of people have experience with the severity my son deals with. Eli's nonverbal has a lot of behavioral issues. Bangs his head on anything he can when he's upset. It can be a wall, floor, knee, one of us if he's able. We recently had to make the hardest decision in our lives to send him to a facility to get him the help he needs. 
in the Pennhurst Suck, you spoke about how we have made a lot of strides for people that are intellectually disabled, but things are still pretty rough. The place my son is currently in is a six-week program that is geared to specifically or specifically for teens with autism that are in crisis. Uh, or that, yeah, the place he was, yeah, he was uh, there for eight weeks. And when he came home last Monday, his behaviors were worse than before he left. We were heartbroken to say the least. His first night home, I had to put him in a hold to protect him from himself multiple times. In six days, he put three holes in the wall and a dent in my wife's car with his forehead. God dang. He attacked my wife, knocked her down to the ground twice before she was able to get him inside the gates so that she could help get to her phone and call for help. My son's 11, over five feet tall. He's a big boy, only getting bigger. We had to break down, send him back to the program to protect him and my wife. Also accept the possibility that residential care may be the best option for my son. One thing you said that I appreciated greatly was your comment about when the workers at Penners had to put people in restraints. You said, yeah, well, what else would you do? Uh, or what would you do? Yeah. As someone who has to regularly make this decision to put my son in a restraining hold, sometimes in public, it isn't something I do lightly. I love my son more than anything in the world. Sometimes we have to protect those we love even from themselves. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Fortunately, most people in my life have been amazingly supportive. The program my son is full of a bunch of wonderful people to take amazing care of my son. When other programs have washed their hands of him because his behavior made it too difficult to deal with, they accepted him back with huge smiles on their faces because they missed him while he was gone. My wife and I wrote a book about our journey a couple years ago called A Puzzle Half Finished. We're Christians, so it's written from a Christian perspective. But we tried not to be too preachy. We just wanted to use it to help people. We're huge fans of Time Suck, all your stand-up, so, you know, we can't be too bad, right? Nah, you're fine. Come on. Uh, I would love to send you a copy. It would be, if you're interested in reading it, my wife is a wonderful meat sack that actually got me listening to, t- to the suck. I wouldn't be able to do this life without her. We've shared highs, high highs and low lows, and yet after 13 years of marriage with a child with special needs, we're as strong as ever. Love it. Hello, Safina. I'm really sorry for the long message. I didn't mean to even ramble on this long. Long live the suck, Joey Crab. P.S. During the New World Order Sucks, idiot to the internet segment, you got hung up on the name uh, Yeshua. And to clear it up, Yeshua is the Hebrew name of Jesus, like Jose versus Joseph. All right. Well, thank you, Joey Crab. Uh, if you'd like to send in a copy of A Puzzle Half Finished, I mean, we'd love to have it in our growing library. Uh, I, I hope other people who would like to learn more, more about autism, you know, go out there and buy it. Uh, you sound like a tr- truly amazing, loving, you know, parent, both of you loving parents. I can't imagine how hard this process has been on you both. Uh, sounds like you're doing everything you can as best you can. And that's, uh, you know, the best anyone can do. So thanks for being fucking great people in a world that always can use more great people. And Yeshua, I am embarrassed. I got hung up on that. I, I thought I knew that. Apparently that week I didn't. Uh, hug your wife for me. And yeah, and I hope you uh, too sell a ton of books and, you know, help a lot of other people. And last update now from a very funny, very tough meet Zach Izzy, a favorite of Lucifina. And Izzy writes, hello, master sucker, king of the freaky and duke of the disgusting. I'm emailing to comment on some similarities in a lot of your true crime episodes. Quick warning in case you read this on the podcast. This email contains self-harm details. Now on to the creepy similarity, blood. A fetish for blood and cutting is far more common than you may think. It's not my thing. And like you, even though I try not to kink shame, it is concerning to be sexually attracted to, a concerning thing. When I was 19 through 21, I struggled with two things, cutting myself and random sex. My bipolar disorder has given me a bad habit of hypersexuality and risky sex, which means the men I used to end up with were not, let's say, top tier. I love the way you wrote that. Uh, Multiple men were turned on by my self-harm scars on my thighs, and it freaked me out. They would kiss, touch, and caress my scars. One guy even asked me to make a new cut for him, freaky. Hearing how the monsters and murderers and your sucks often have the same fetish disturbs me, makes me wonder if any of those men I was with were psychopaths. I genuinely feel like I dodged multiple bullets. I may as well be Keanu in the Matrix. 
Thank you for doing what you do. Your transgender episode gave me the courage to tell my mom I'm bisexual. Listen to the podcast. It's lifted me up during dark times. Proud to say that I'm now three months clean regarding self-harm. Never stop making people laugh and think. You bring so many people together. We are grateful for you and the whole Bad Magic crew. I'll miss is you dumb. Can't wait till can you don't. Hail the sexy beast, Lucifina. Praise be to Fluff Buff, uh, Fluff Butt Bojangles and uh, to hell with the devil. Yeah. Adios, cocksuckers, peepers, space lizard, dummy. Yours gratefully, Izzy. Well, thank you, Izzy. Three months clean. Good on you. And and way to be so introspective and deal with your shit. So many people don't. And so glad you told your mom. I hope a weight felt like it was lifted. And obviously hope that she uh, accepted, you know, exactly who you are. And yeah, I really don't want to kink shame, but I just, I just want people to love, respect, and take care of themselves so they lead, you know, happier, more fulfilling lives. Uh, when I kink shame in those little moments, it's, it is coming from a place of good. The intentions are there. I have no idea if a true link exists between a blood fetish and some serial killers, but you know, like you pointed out, anecdotally, sure seems to be. Sure seems to be connection, right? That version of paraphilia uh, makes a lot of sense because it does come up a lot. And thanks for sharing your story. I mean, who knows who you uh, just might've inspired to tell someone in their life who they really are or to reduce the risk they put themselves in. So thank you and thank everyone who writes in each and every week. Next time, suckers, I needed that. We all did. Another Bad Magic Productions podcast in the bag, building towards episode 500 now. Uh, please don't, uh, you know, brainwash a teenager desperate for parental affection into an assassin and then have them start killing strangers to help you get away with killing your ex-wife this week. Just leave that kid alone. Get some therapy. Keep on sucking. Oh. Bad Magic Productions. No, 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 no. I, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think it'll be a problem. I think, I think we can still get Papa John's as a sponsor. I mean, what did I say? Better, better ingredients, you know, better murder. Okay. You know, okay. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's still getting their name out there. It's still getting their name out there. Better ingredients, better sniping. You know, I think we have a real shot at them still. And I, and I do want to look into sure shot auto zone or, you know, whatever the fuck they were and see if we can, maybe we can do like a, a sure shot, uh, sure shot killing with pizza, Papa John's. I don't know. Some kind of hybrid or something. N- no. D- okay. All right. Well, you know, some, sometimes ship sail. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 